Bradley chipped forward and look at this it's Julian Green would you believe it the youngster gives the US hope Not quite enough. No, it was a great ending, though. Yeah, we just had a uh, sportscaster staff meeting at the uh, <laughs> clubhouse of the golf course across the street from our studio. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about the World Cup as we get into this. But, uh, man, Tim Howard is an American hero. I mean, that was in just an unbelievable performance by him today. And, uh, obviously, we'll talk more about the World Cup as we get into three things how was your summer vacation, Don? We both have uh, tales to tell of how unglamorous our summer vacations <laughs> were. Would you like to share your misery first? Yeah, I did take. I took a week off of my day job uh, for my birthday, and then midway through it, I was getting my wisdom teeth pulled. I figured, okay, I'll take the few days to relax. Well, one of I didn't get dry socket. I guess that's like the dreaded thing to get with wisdom teeth, but I got an infection. And it jacked me up, and then I had to go back to the dentist, and he had to, like, reopen the... He had to come in on the weekend, right? Just yeah, to... he came in on a Saturday. He reopened, like, the incision, like, the, where the extraction point, and, like, scraped it out. It was the worst 45 minutes I've ever experienced. It was pretty terrible. And I uh, did an annual summer trip into the hospital for, like, a Crohn's oil change, as I like to call it. <laughs> So I spent seven days of our summer break in there. So that was awesome. Yeah, mine at least I was, at least mine was spent at home. It was still better than work. I said. Really? So <laughs> you love your job so much that the most forty-five. Well, no, not that. Maybe okay. not that day. All maybe right. not that day. That part you'll you'll. I'll you'll pass, pass on that. On. Yeah, I'll go to work instead of that. Well, welcome back. It's the Sportscasters episode nineteen of season four. It's July first, Canada Day, two thousand fourteen. We got a great show lined up for you. A pretty diverse show. We got Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated is going to join us to talk about a column that he wrote on the cover of this week's Sports Illustrated about the Houston Astros and the way that they've been going about developing their team, having been the worst team in the league for enough to earn the first pick three straight years, and um, they've consistently, a few times in the last in that stretch, drawn a zero point zero television rating for home games uh, in their market. So that's really good. They got a big hole to climb out of, and Ben wrote a great article about that. We're going to talk to Ben about that. It'll be interesting to see too, because the Sabers are doing essentially what the Astros have done, which is just letting it bottom out to the worst point you can ever remember, and trying to build it back up through high draft picks and prospects and things like that. I know I'm not a big baseball guy, but have the Astros ever been good? They did go to the World Series in 2005. Okay, so it's been that, to been the that White recent. Sox. I don't know how I don't remember that at all. Yeah, Baggio and Bagwell did get him there the one year. Okay. So that's about it. And they had Nolan Ryan. Right, yeah, I did know that. So, uh, But uh, we're going to talk to Ben Ryder today, who's a good friend of the show. We're also going to close out the book club for June and do an interview with Blake J. Harris, the author of our last uh, book club book of the month here, um, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. So to talk to Blake... And also, for the first time, we're going to have Michael Beller, who is the head fantasy writer at Sports Illustrated, uh, who just released their fantasy football magazine. Uh, We're going to talk to him about what's left for the fantasy football magazine as a 
relevant entity and uh, what went into the book. And we're going to talk some fantasy football with them. And today we're actually going to do the first five on fantasy in quite a while and do a mock draft uh, for round one, see where we're at with that. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk uh, more in the book club. we got to talk about book club book of the year. I'd like to get some tweets from you on that. Five fantasy, one last thing. But uh, before we can get to any of that, let's get things started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. On the count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right. Don and I got three together today. And the first and most important thing, sweep, sweeping the country with incredible ratings and huge crowds all over the United States. People have really gotten into the World Cup this year. And I would point to a few factors, one being the times are great. The games are just yeah, being right. played at great times to get together and watch them. They're not really late at night. They're not too early in the day. And um, it's just, I think, the perfect storm for the United States. And they did just go out, uh, but they... They battle. I respect the hell out of the battle. Uh, before the break, we had Rob Stone on, and I, I admitted that in terms of world soccer, I'm an Italian fan first. Uh, certainly don't root against the U.S., but I'm not going to be phony about it either and pretend like I'm a huge live-and-die fan of U.S. soccer, but I'm a United States citizen, and I certainly want them to win before Belgium or any other country that is in Italy. Uh, and I was proud of them today. They were outplayed. They were outclassed. But Tim Howard made save after save after save. And when it seemed like they should die and roll over, they fought and fought and fought. And honestly, they had a minute. At the 93rd minute, they had a chance number 18 should have scored to win the game, really. Yep. And didn't. And then Dempsey had a chance when it was 2-1. to yeah, one a real cool set piece. On a set piece to tie it and didn't. So you can't ask for more than that. It's been a great tournament. Five of the eight games in the round of 16 went to extra time. Brazil was almost upset by Chile. Uh, Costa Rica has had an unbelievable run uh, into the uh, round of eight, winning uh, one of the groups of death with England and Italy being eliminated. And uh, then that's been the good. Then there's been some bad. There's some rumors of some match fixing with Cameroon, which could get really ugly if it's yeah. true. Uh, the Luis Suarez biting incident was a joke. Uh, the officiating in the, the Italy-Uruguay game was horrendous. Uh, Mario Balotelli showed the worst of Mario Balotelli during the World Cup, uh, which was really disappointing for any Italian fans. So it's been a lot of good. There's been a lot of bad, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of excitement uh, the way the games have been just so close. And now it's uh, one thing is there's been some, some good stories, but all eight group winners are now the eight teams left. And... Obviously, Costa Rica sticks out as maybe the one team you wouldn't expect, but France is going to play Germany. You know, Argentina is still alive. Brazil is still alive. The Netherlands are still alive. So despite teams like Spain and England and Italy uh, not making it through, there's still huge soccer powers there in the end. It's like the NCAA tournament in a lot of ways where you see the, the, the good stories early, but usually at the end it's still about the big powers and the big teams. Yeah, I'm I'm with you uh, the whole way. I've, I've played soccer most of my most of my life, but I 
don't have a team. I don't watch it. But this to me is like the Olympics, I guess, when the Olympics aren't on. If, in my house, like for the month that it's on, if if nothing else is going on, I'm going to flip and see what game is on the World Cup. And, I mean, it sucks that the U.S. is out now, but it'll be kind of cool to be able to just watch a game with no rooting interest I, that I don't care about one way or another. It's been really entertaining. So, And that's what we're rooting for from here on out. It's yeah, entertainment, be right? be good, yeah. Yeah, and it it's a, comes at a great time of the year for sports too right what else would we be doing right now right it's the beginning of baseball so. it's not even the all-star break yet right you know so yeah it's been a great year for sports with uh the olympics being there to fill some time you know and uh this tournament being here to fill some time in the summer before you know it i think it's less than 30 days before the hall of fame game or right around 30 days yeah fantasy footballs starting yeah. to think about that so, we'll get to that later too it's good time and for a summer, like you said, where there's not many much sports typically going on. It's a good good time to be a sports fan. We set off the top. July 1st is Canada Day. July 1st also means NHL free agency. Uh, it also means it's another year past the darkest day in Sabres history, July 1st, <laughs> 2007, yep. when we've seen Briere and Jury walk away from a President's Trophy team. And really what we're seeing now in Buffalo is the kind of bottoming out. That was the start of where they ended last yeah, year. Yeah, it took so right? long, yeah. But uh, they had a great day, the Sabres, today, I thought. Um, spending more money on Molson and Gianta than most teams would, but they had to spend money to get to the floor anyway. Yeah, not a, not, not and a they're crazy players. amount more. They're right, I mean, Molson's a 30-goal scorer for $5 million. It's about what you pay for one. Uh People were worried about – I wasn't. I never thought getting to the floor was going to be a problem for any team because you could pay somebody. But that said, they're going to get to the floor without signing an embarrassing deal. Like, they're not going to – they didn't have to go out and sign – Bob Corkum. Uh, sure, Bob Corkum right. and just give him $3 million just because to do you it. have to. Right. These like, guys are guys that it they It seems think, like the Flames might have made one of those deals. Yeah, today. Derek yeah. England for about $3 million a year. Uh but yeah, they got guys that they think are going to be leaders going forward. And uh, the way the team stacked up now, they have a lot of young talent. If they can develop together, it might only be a year or two before they're a good team. And those players they signed to contracts today will still be on this team when they're good, hopefully, if you're a Sabres fan. You're hoping that it's it's not a long, drawn-out. You don't want to be Edmonton. Edmonton has done the bottom out totally wrong. Uh, they kind of did it the way the Detroit Lions have done it, it seems like, in football, if you want to draw a comparison. Picking high all the time, missing on guys, or just not being able to fill out a team around the guys that they hit on. Uh, they gave up. Who's the guy they just gave up that's always in rumors? Gagne. Gagne, for practically nothing. I, that, that was a real bizarre deal for me, uh, but I guess they're just too deep at center. Yeah, league-wide, there was a lot of money spent today. Yep. Uh, some good money, some bad money. The Brooks Orpa contract seems ridiculous to me. Yep. In Washington, it's a lot, a long deal for a guy who's already old. Yeah, he's thirty-four. He'll finish that contract at thirty-nine. And, and it's, it's like a lot of money a for a guy who's yeah. not going to score. You don't bring him in for that, but it's still a lot of money. He just represents more of like he's not a great skater. He's kind of like a Darian Hatcher type. I mean, he's probably a better skater than that, but it, it's kind of an old way of playing defense one thing about him though you get he does raise his play in playoffs sure he's gotten his last two, two contracts, contracts right. off the strength of great playoff runs yep so if you think you're gonna get Ovechkin you know you have Ovechkin in his prime now so 
if sure. they can get a cup yeah. because they got an Ovechkin team there and Orpic had a great playoffs, then it's worth every penny. You know, but there's going to be some dead money that you're going to have to deal with at the end of that deal. He's not going to be a good 39 year old hockey player. I wouldn't I would think, think so, no. But uh, I thought Brad Richards landed in a pretty good spot in Chicago. I think that's a pretty pressure free spot for him to just. Yeah, if he has anything left. I mean, he wasn't very good in the playoffs. So, but I mean, if he has anything left, he's going to have people to play with there. Yeah, and uh, who else made some good signings today? There were some good ones. Well, Spezza got traded to the Stars. Yeah, I like that. I That's, like what the Stars have done in the last two years. You said at our little offsite meeting that number one centers, like legit centers, are hard to come by in the NHL. And, and they've in the maybe last gotten two. year, they've gotten two good yeah. ones. So, and Sagan and uh, Spezza now. So. They could be good. They yeah. could be a real good team. And they have a great coach. We know what Lindy Ruff can do with coaching. Sure. Yep. They have a really great goaltending prospect in Jack Campbell, who was actually on one of our very first shows, if you recall, oh, way, yeah. way back yeah. when. You know, so they have a great goaltending prospect, you know. Uh, they have Jamie Benn, who's a you know, a great player, still lots of years left, so and they challenged uh the Ducks, you know, right right, yeah. right to the end in that in that, that series. So I like what they did. Um what about the draft? Uh, the draft is also since we've been on. It went pretty much to perfect chalk for the Sabers or whatever. I guess yeah. you would say. So I mean, I know I know. Once in a while, we'll blog the NFL draft because it's kind of fun, and the NFL is so big and whatever. And we've thought about doing the NHL draft, but it would have been a total bust. It would have been boring. Like the, yeah, leading it was kind of the typical lead up. Wasn't much many trades. trades. Yeah, yeah, there weren't weren't many. Just picks for picks. Yep, uh, Florida didn't move that pick, and they took the defenseman. So if you're a Sabres fan, it worked out perfect. Yep, uh, losing the lottery did nothing to you. No, nope, Reinhardt's the guy I wanted. Yep. Reinhardt's probably the guy they wanted going into the season. They wasted no time making the pick. That was great. Yep, I loved it. He just walked up. Sabres pick Sammy Reinhardt. Yeah, I mean, he, people dropped the mic. Yeah, dropped yeah. the mic. Yeah. Walk off. So, yeah, so an interesting time in the NHL, and uh, we'll. Try to get someone on maybe next week and, and see what, what – uh, maybe we get Puck Daddy on and, and look back. Yeah, to make one more – this is a Buffalo-centric comment, but it's real easy uh, for Buffalo to be viewed as a place where people don't want to go. It may be Buffalo as a smaller town, like the I fans think that ended today. have a little people complex type thing, but at the last place team in the league by a lot. Like had the Sabres won 10 more games last year, they still, still would have been in last place. Yep. The last place team by a lot attracted legit uh, players. Like they didn't just make, like I said, signings for the sake of signing. So I think Tim Murray and the team is heading in a good direction. Uh, There's no reason good about to it. not want to be here if you're a hockey player. I wouldn't. There's think so. an owner who's going to spend as much money as makes sense at all times. You're never going to have to worry about money not being spent here. Right. They're making beautiful improvements. There's great facilities. It's cheap to live here. Yep. Um, your money's going to go very far here. Um, and would you rather be any not other non-playoff team in the league? No, I'm, I doubt it. I mean, in terms of what they have with draft picks and prospects and cap space and all of that, as bad as they were last year and as bad as they might be next year, I'm great with where they're at. Yeah, uh, the Devils are interesting. I saw someone made an interesting post about them that they got Camilleri this year, who should make them a little bit better, and they got rid of Brodeur, which should make them better, and they won zero shootouts last year, and they missed the playoffs by just a couple points. So that's a team that might make a nice jump, Like if, as far as if you're really asking, like, is there a 
a better non-playoff team to be. But no, I th- I think if you're the if you want to get into hockey today, the Sabers are a good team to be a fan of because they just look so deep in their system. It's going to take a couple of years, but you can get in at the ground floor right now, and uh, you're going to see some some real stars emerge. Hopefully. All right, last thing for three things today. Just wanted to talk a little bit about what we might have missed since we were gone, and we did miss a lot. First of all, the uh, Los Angeles Kings won the Stanley Cup, and I thought it was a really good Stanley Cup for a five-gamer. I mean, if Chris Kreider scores on his overtime breakaways, it's 3-2 to two <laughs> yeah. New York instead of uh, Stanley Cup over. Uh, so it was a lot closer than it may have appeared. Yeah, yeah I mean, we would have liked to go more games. Just but... about all the games were exciting. Sure. Especially the last one. Uh, I think the one point I wanted to make is just that the NHL had a great year for the NHL all the way through, and the finals didn't hurt it despite it being short. No. And then the awards show got a lot of buzz because uh, Cuba Cooney Jr. was yeah. apparently uh, a little lit up. Conversely, the NBA had a terrible ending. That was as bad of a five-game series as you're going to get. Yeah, I don't know. The margin of victory in those games was unbelievable how badly the Spurs blew out. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't we haven't podcast since then. But I actually, and I know it's always the thing, I don't watch it or whatever, but I watched two of those games, and it was like game, which one did the Heat win? Game two. two. So I watched game three and four, and they were horrible. They were just terrible games. They never got really all that close. Uh, they had, like, guys off the bench from the Spurs making behind and back. They made them look terrible. They made Miami look like an amateur team. And now it'll be interesting to see what happens with Miami this summer because all three of the big three have opted out of their contracts, uh, potentially to help the team, not necessarily to leave the team. You know, potentially they opted out to rework their deals if you're to the make team, some do you even want to get some help. Do you even want Dwayne Wade back? Probably not. Yeah, so, I mean, his opting out might not have been this best move on his part. Right, so I don't know where that leaves them, but they're going to be an interesting story all year. What's LeBron going to do? Where where does LeBron fit? Yeah, there's rumors he might go back like to Cleveland. And great news for Cleveland with Kyrie Irving committing yeah, to in. there, which is great for them because that would have been terrible for him to leave. Yeah. You hit on a first overall pick like that, and it would have been terrible. But he got a max deal. So, you, you know, that's a great news for Cleveland. Um what else has gone on in the NBA? Anything we need to talk about there? They had their their draft. free agency period opens today, or their dis- their whatever they call it, the discussion period. They have like a week. I I like that. Uh, this is kind of an aside, but hockey started doing that too, where you can talk to agents. That way, they don't have to pretend that like right, they that haven't they been doing it the whole time. Right. Uh, it was so stupid before. Players would sign the biggest deal of their life at twelve oh one, and you have to pretend that they didn't know going into it. I don't know. It was One thing from the NBA draft is uh, I was excited for Milwaukee to get Jabari Parker just because he's from Chicago. So you're talking about a guy who's only an hour, grew up an hour and a half from your city. And can you think of anything that has anything to do with the Milwaukee Bucks ever right now? Like, can you no. think of the last thing? I'm trying to even think of like NBA jam and stuff. Right, like, <laughs> just for a team that's just been so down. Yeah, it's nice for them to get a break like that when you get the second pick for it to be a guy who's from relatively close to where you are, who has the potential and the he's a he's consi- was considered the safe guy there. Okay, like the least bust potential, you know. So I was really happy for them to uh, to get him. I thought that was cool. Interesting draft. Oh, another interesting thing that happened during the NBA po- finals. Did you see Bill Simmons pout? No, I don't think so. He didn't get to talk on one of the post-game shows for a while, 
and he complained about it on the air. Really? Yeah, like, oh, finally I get to say something? Like, it was like <laughs> nine minutes or something where everyone else was talking and not him. Wow. So I thought that was kind of funny. But uh, today another weird story happened at Wim- I mean, Wimbledon in general. Yeah, Wimbledon. A strange. But, uh, yeah, Nadal's so- out. Nadal's out, and uh, you said there were no Americans. No Americans are left are on either left. side. And Serena, I don't know what's going to come out. They, they say it's a virus her, right but now, she but that's what you'd say. It was all out of sorts. Like She had trouble picking the ball up off the ground. She looked like me trying to serve it over the net at, at points. It was it was really. It looked like she was heat stroking out, kind of. Yeah. You know it, what I it, mean? It looked like someone who was like delirious from illness. I, I think Damashek said on Twitter, I'm not saying she's drunk, but she looks like she's drunk. Right. Like it looked like she was drunk. And or usually, she was when you're, you're a not serious problem, when you're not drunk, but you look drunk, yeah, it's because wrong. you're fading out health wise, right, or something. I was surprised how long it even. Like I was surprised, mostly I think by the lack of reaction from her sister. Like I would have been like. Well, something's wrong with her. Like this doesn't feel right. But I, I mean, they they withdrew from the doubles because of it, and I'm sure something will come out. It, yeah, it was it was kind it's, of scary. It's almost. been a weird Wimbledon, and we are planning on anyway tracking down John Wertheim because he hasn't been on in so long. There's so much I want to ask him about the magazine and his editor role, but oh, he's yeah. been down at Wimbledon, and there's going to be plenty to ask him about tennis wise uh, because it's been such an interesting tournament. Uh, a really interesting reaction from Nadal today too. Couldn't care it. less. Signed autographs on the way off the court. Really? Talked about how he's going to the beach yeah. now. So just no big deal to him, I guess. Which is maybe going to prevent him from being the best ever if he's so blasé about it. But uh, NFL, Jimmy Graham, there's going to be a decision on that July 3rd. Oh, he appealed the, well, the tight end wide receiver right, thing? Right, the grievance. Which is, re- I mean, it's played out exactly like you would think. They might use this Twitter bio against him. I heard that. His Twitter bio says tight, tight end. end. Right. He also goes to tight end meetings, not wide receiver meetings. I, and I heard a stat that he lined up at the tight end spot. Like, for over 40% of the time, and no wide receiver did it once. Yeah. So I, <laughs> it would be an unbelievable precedent for the arbitrator to set if he goes for Graham. Because I don't know who would be able to be considered tight end anymore. So he got the, the whole issue is he got franchise tagged. He's got franchise, and the issue is, does he get seven million as a top five tight end, or twelve million as a top five? That's five. Yeah, that's that's now the, serious money. If it wasn't for this being such a huge decision for the league, they probably would have already compromised on ten. But I think both sides want to hold out because the decision is going to change football. Right. Sure. Because Jimmy Graham and players like him have changed the position. Yeah. The only thing I would say about that is, our he just happened to be a great tight end at a bad time because there's not much precedent. There's Tony Gonzalez and maybe Gronk before him. Right. They're, those guys are all it. changing it now. Right. And so, now he, as far as the NFL needing to change the ruling, it's going to catch up. You know, when he comes up for this contract, someone's going to give him $10 million a year to play. Oh, no, the Saints are going to pay him whatever it takes to pay him. Right. So say the Saints pay him, they're going to pay him something, and then Julius Thomas is going to come up for a contract, and then uh, Vernon Davis. Or, right, and Vernon Davis is watching this like a hawk. Right, and then there's a kid in uh, He's used in a similar. In Cleveland that had a great start to the year last year. Cameron. Jordan yeah, Jordan Cameron. Cameron. I mean, all. so I think of. 
this is a big deal for Jimmy Graham and maybe the next guy or two, but it seems like the tight end position has evolved so much. That these guys are going to get paid. Like, I, I don't think it's going to come down to it being as big a difference as it is now. It's just the fact that the top tight end in the fifth, like who's the fifth highest paid tight end. It's probably some guy that's nowhere near as good as the fifth highest paid wide receiver. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and we're going to get into kind of a little bit of a dead period for the NFL before it just blows up. Yeah, that'll be all, you know, in the, all football. Yeah. So uh, that's it for three things. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll do Ben Ryder first. Then we'll do the book club. Then we'll do Blake J. Harris, Five on Fantasy, Michael Beller, and one last thing. Pack show. Pack show. <laughs> Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. Today, he's a staff writer for Sports Illustrated, where he covers baseball, football, and in 2010, covered the World Cup soccer tournament. Uh, his story on the Houston Astros is featured on the cover of the current issue of Sports Illustrated. He's making a seventh appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? Doing well, doing well. How many... Am I behind Jenkins here? This is number seven. Twelve. I'm twelve behind still. Yeah, yeah he is. He had his nineteenth before the NBA Finals. Does he like live next door to you or something? That's incredible. <laughs> well, <laughs> he was on number four or five, so he was like on right away. You know, like his first appearance was right away. And then the thing that loads him up is we don't have a lot of basketball guys. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Yeah, so when I reach out to a basketball guy, it's like, am I calling Lee or am I calling Taz Mellis? Like, those are kind of my, that's like the extent of my basketball Rolodex. Yeah, I was going to make some joke about how I was gunning for Lee the pants record, but he, he put some space between me and him even since last time I was on. Yeah, you know who people are gaining on now that he's big time is Wertheim. Because Wertheim was way up there, but now everyone's gaining on him because he doesn't come on as much now that he's the editor. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Now, now he's a big shot at SIZ. Right, exactly. Editor, so. Right. So, all right. Well, I'll, I'll track him down then. Yeah. You know, well, first of all, congratulations on appearing on the Mad Dog show. You were pretty pumped about that, huh? Yeah, you know, those was, was a thrill. I grew up in New Jersey, so I was well within WFAN reach. So Mike and the Mad Dog provided the soundtrack team on many afternoon drives when I was growing up. Um, obviously, Chris has expanded his empire, and it was really great to uh, be on his show on MLB Network, High Heat. Um, and it was doubly great because he seemed to be really into the story and kind of fascinated by what the Astros are doing, which uh, I agree is pretty fascinating when you uh, really get into it. All right. So, yeah, I'm also really interested in talking to you about the Astros, but I always want to talk about process a little bit too. And one thing I was curious about is when you approach a story like this, do you know ahead of time how much space you're going to have? Because this one is one that just came off as really, really long. I think it was 23 pages on the, um, on the app and it's about 11 pages or so in the magazine. Uh, do you, do you, do you have to report first and then figure out, or like, how does it exactly work process-wise when you have a cover story like this? You know, it's a really interesting question. This is the longest story that I've had published in Sports Illustrated. We really don't publish things that are much longer than this. It's about six thousand words, 
Uh, you know, I didn't really have a word count on this one. My editors kind of said, just go ahead. They knew that I had negotiated for some really good access. Um, and they just said, go ahead, uh, see what you come up with. So, you know, I wrote the story. It turned out to be really long, but I thought it was pretty tight. And it's one of those cases where you file it and you just hope that they make room for it. Um, and not only did they think it was strong enough to merit 10 pages, but they put it on the cover too. So uh, that's how that worked. And it's kind of a gamble on my part. Maybe they'll come back and say this is twice as long as it should be, and then you'll have to cut it. But in this case, I'm very grateful that I did it. Yeah, were you surprised that they were as interested in it? I mean, not because it's the the content at all, but were you thinking like, ah, maybe the Astros isn't something that Sports Illustrated is going to want to put on the cover? You know, maybe the team is a little bit too... I mean, they're drawing a 0.0 rating for some of their television games, as you, yeah. as you, you know, was that a concern well, at all? So we had been interested for over a year in what exactly was going on down there in Houston. And there were a bunch of smart guys in the front office. Jeff Luno came from the Cardinals when he was in the scouting department. He had all sorts of stats guys. And yet you look at this team, and they were not only terrible, but they were throwing up 0.0 TV rating. They were not drawing any fans in the mid-park. They were being made fun of by Alex Trebek on Jeopardy, even. So we kind of started to think, what the heck is going on down there? Um, started to talk to them a little bit about maybe doing a story really inside this uniquely pure rebuilding process. Seems like with the draft coming up, they have their third number one overall pick in a row, the first time that's ever happened. Seemed like it might be a good time to really get in there uh, and do the story. Um, and we asked for what was really kind of unprecedented access to their draft process and their front office. And to our pleasant surprise, they said yes. So, you know, that level of access and kind of the unique nature of the story uh, also contributed to why it's kind of so long and in-depth um, and also why it ended up on the cover. You know, it's not every day that a team that's near last place um, there's in last place in AOS makes the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's for sure. Yeah, where well, you you mentioned in the original question and in the follow up about the access you were able to get from the Astros. Were you surprised at all that they weren't a little bit more guarded with what I'm sure they're considering somewhat of a secret sauce in the way that they're approaching things? A little bit. Um, you know, I a lot of stories you kind of ask for the moon and then. You know, maybe they'll give you a, a small piece of it. In this case, they basically gave us everything we asked for, um, you know, with just a few ground rules, really, about, you know, things that we couldn't report. But they were really very minor, just like a couple things. Um, but beyond that, you know, they pride themselves on being the most transparent organization out there. They're not hiding what they're doing. They're not hiding from fans that they're trying to rebuild as quickly as possible, even though that means some painful years. And I think that opening up their front office to us as Sports Illustrated is just a part of that. So, yeah, when I was reading the article, it really reminded me of the Sabres. You have the Astros, they peak in 2005. The Sabres really peaked in 2007, and both teams have had a drastic decline since and have been in bottoms that neither franchise has ever seen before. So I was really interested in comparing the two and the way that both are seemingly building up. The thing that I wanted to ask you from a Houston perspective is, did you get a sense, I know you were with the team, but did you get a sense 
at this point where the fans are in terms of being on board with this rebuild? I did. I mean, there's obviously a lot of negative feeling in Houston, but I was expecting to go into Minute Maid Park and find this kind of depressing, cavernous, quiet space. And it really wasn't like that at all. I happened to go during a big week. They had just come off uh, off their first winning month since 2010. They had recently promoted George, here the top prospect. I was there on the day that John Singleton played his first game. There was actually some buzz there. Let's not forget, this is the fourth largest market in the United States. They do have a fan base. They used to draw 3 million fans. What they're betting on is that this fan base has simply been dormant um, through these down years and will revitalize and come out once more just as soon as they put a winning product on the field. The sportscasters are here with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated, and Ben's been very patient. We're actually having all kinds of unprecedented uh, technical difficulties here, <laughs> something we haven't dealt with. So I told Ben if he cuts out again, we're just going to cut it short because it's not fair to him. <laughs> There's but, another one. And, and maybe as I explain it, we're actually going to lose him. Uh, I still have you. Do you have me, Ben? Yeah, you just came back. Okay. So, yeah, like I said, if it cuts out again, I'm going to let Ben go. But um, – uh, as far as the Astros piece again, uh, this draft, you talked about the four players and then making the really gutsy move of picking a high school pitcher, only the third time it's been done, and the other two times not as successfully. Uh, as you followed them in the story, were you surprised ultimately that they went with the high school pitcher? I wasn't surprised. Um, I sat in the draft room with guys like Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio. It was actually a meeting room before the draft, and they were talking about uh, the six players that were still in the running as far as the day before, um, they talked about six. It was really down to the four I talked about in the article. Um, and, you know, this is a team that believes in its processes. They've got a brilliant uh, analyst named Sig Maydahl who runs what they call their decision sciences department. Uh, he uses all sorts of metrics, um, including heavily the scouting report that they get in from longtime scouts. To, to come up with, you know, kind of the ideal decisions that they should make in concert with GM Jeff Luna and a few other guys. Um, I knew that if their metrics and their scouts pointed to a high school pitcher as the best player in the draft, that's who we're going to pick. Ultimately, it said that Brady Aiken was the best player in the draft, even though he's a high school pitcher, um, and it was Brady Aiken whose name they called. Do you know if baseball is thinking at all about changing the way they award the 1-1 pick because of the Astros having this unprecedented run and picks in a row? I know the NHL is kind of tweaking their system to try and avoid tanking and things like that. Is baseball looking at this at all? Not that I know of. Um, you know, it's kind of different in baseball, too. The draft is obviously different in several ways. Um, but number one overall is not the sure thing that it is in other sports, or at least generally. You know, maybe Cavs fans would question that statement with <laughs> right. in the wake of Anthony Bennett. But, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, yes, it's, it's obviously a great pick to have. You have your choice of the whole world of amateurs. But, you know, baseball draft picks are notoriously hard to predict. That's why they have 50 rounds a year. Maybe if you get a couple of those 50 picks making the big league, you're doing a good job. You had, uh, in your story, put the 2017 World Series champions, and it made me recall a story that Verducci did about the uh-huh. Rays a few years ago, where he pr- oh, yeah. where he similarly, the, the headline was like, the Rays would maybe be the 2013 champions. And I was just wondering if maybe you had uh, thought about the comparison of how the Rays had rebuilt their team 
compared to how the Astros are doing it, and if that played into yeah, we did. I did. You know, we should we should say that that was not my prediction of their 2017 World Series champion. That I don't write the cover line, um, but I don't think that it's far off. I don't think it's far fetched. I have thought about the Astros in, as compared to the Rays, and I've also thought about them as compared to the Washington Nationals. Really, you know, the Nationals had two straight number one picks. They were Harper and Strasburg. Obviously, right. the Astros' decisions were a lot harder. But they kind of took a path similar to the one that I think the Astros might take. 2010, they were 69 and 93. Then 2011, they were around 500. And then the next year, all of a sudden, they're, you know, the best team in the National League making the playoffs. And they've kind of gone from there. So I think if maybe we see this year as that 69 and 93 year, and next year, maybe it'll be a 500 season for the Astros. And then the following year, I think that they would definitely expect to contend. All right. Uh, ben Ryder writes for Sports Illustrated. He's at SI underscore Ben Ryder on Twitter. Uh, his story about the Astros is on the current edition of the magazine. And I'm going to cut this short just because of all of the technical difficulties we're having. And I want Ben to want to come on again. And pretty soon he's going to say, I'm never going to do this again because it's the biggest pain in the ass. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one question because on this show, we also have uh, uh, Michael Beller on and uh, talking about the Sports Illustrated Fantasy Football magazine. And you were a part of that. And I just wanted to ask you generally, if you had a good time doing that, what made you want to write the fantasy stuff? And if you're going to do more fantasy football stuff in the future? Yeah, you know, I don't see the division between fantasy coverage and kind of more hard news coverage that some other people see. You know, I think that, you know, they're kind of hand-in-hand. I I participate in fantasy sports myself, um, and it's it's a lot of fun, you know. It takes the same sort of analytical skills and understanding of statistics and storylines as really any other sort of work. So, yeah, I'll I'll continue to help uh, pitch in. Um, also with the hope of maybe coming up with some tips that might help my own team um, (laughs) this year and in the years to come. Ben, thanks for uh, grinding out with me here. I'm so sorry about all the technical difficulties, and I promise it'll be better next time we we have you on. You know, my eighth appearance will be smoother. By the time I get to 19 and Ty Lee, uh, you know, this this thing will be a piece of cake. (laughs) Thanks, buddy, and again, really sorry. Okay, bye, Steve. All right, I want to thank Ben Ryder for being on the podcast today. Always love having Ben on. Um, real quick book club update. Uh, it is July 1st. I want to close everything out for June. There's three books, A Cuban Boxer's Journey, uh, Guillermo Rigando from Castro's Trader to American Champion by Bryn Jonathan Butler. That's an ebook available everywhere. We do ebooks. Uh, about three or four episodes ago, uh, Bryn was on with... S.L. Price, the author of our second book, Pitching Around Fidel, A Journey into the Heart of Cuban Sports. That's been reissued in paperback and is also now available in ebook formats as well. Uh, those guys are on together at the very beginning of the month to talk about their books. A really great interview. I recommend you check that out. In a second, we're going to do an interview with Blake J. Harris, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. Something different to do in the summer. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you guys are going to enjoy the interview. Don makes an interview appearance. When's the last time you did an interview, Don? I don't know. It has been a while. Yeah, but we we, you know, we don't do interviews together that often. But man, we didn't trip on each other once. We were handing the questions off back and forth. We did well. That was all right. Yeah, yeah we did well. I mean, uh, you guys will like the interview. It's it's long. Uh, it's maybe a little bit more than you might want to hear on video games. Yeah, but anyone that's around our age will geek out on that for. 
yeah i i could have talked to the guy after i could have talked to him for another hour about current video games and and i'm excited to keep up with them because i think i i'm really excited to see what the documentary version of the book is going to be and he's got great funny people behind him working with him so uh we're excited about that so check out that interview in a second the only other thing we had to mention for the book club is it's time to pick the book club book of the year uh for we'll do it in july uh last year it was dream team by jack mccollum and the year before that, the first winner was Sweetness, Sweetness by Jeff Perlman. And we were kind of throwing some ideas out there. I would think... It's pretty varied this year. We the, had a video a, game book. Yeah, we, we had a, a lot of different books. We got video JFK games. JFK book. JFK. We got Showtime by Jeff Perlman, which is going to be a candidate. Uh, we have the long-awaited Jonah Carey book about the Expos. Right. Um, David Shoemaker's wrestling book I thought was oh, awesome. Right, right. I really like that. Uh, we had Artie Lang's book. And Artie Lang came on. Yep. So we got a lot to choose from, and we'd love to hear from you. We're at sports underscore casters on Twitter and the sportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know what you think should be uh, the book club book of the year. We'll make that announcement next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have the author on at the end of July, and hopefully we'll have an autographed copy of the book to give away as we have the last couple of years with that winner. Uh, so... Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Blake J. Harris and uh, talk video games. It's been so long since last we met. Lie down forever, lie down. Or have you any money to bet? Lie down forever, lie down. Yeah. There goes old George Georgetown. Straight for a touchdown. See how they gain ground. Lie down forever, lie down. Lie down forever, lie down. Our next guest is from Chappaqua, New York. And is a graduate of Georgetown. He is also the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. A great book. It's been part of our book club book of the month this month. And uh, we're very honored to have with us for the first time a Warren Sportscasters. Welcome to Blake J. Harris. What's up, Blake? I reject your honor. I'm the one who's honored. Thank you guys so much for including it in your book club. Yeah, we've, we, we, love, uh, we love the summertime because it gives us the opportunity, despite... I guess technically being a sports show to uh, to do some different things and actually with the book club we're always willing to do different things. I mean, uh, in November we did a Kennedy book for the you know because it was the 50th anniversary of Kennedy yep. and this is a lot more fun than that. So uh, <laughs> here here's here's one thing I thought of the first thing I want to ask you about it and it, yeah. I don't know if you read or know anything about uh, James Andrew Miller put out a book about a year and a half ago called uh, a book about ESPN. And, uh, yeah, those guys have all the those fun. guys have all the fun, right? And your book reminded me a lot of it because when you start it, it's a business book, and there's a big portion of the book that's about business that you have to get through to get to maybe what you might expect the book to be about when you initially open it. And I thought that James Andrew Miller's book was a lot like that too. There was a hundred pages or so in the beginning about business. Do you think that's a challenge? Um, have you have people who have read it said to you, you know, maybe they didn't stick it out, maybe they they, they thought it was a little dry or boring in the beginning? Was it? Now I didn't because it was interesting to me, but like the SPM book, I I think when you go into it initially, maybe you're expecting something else, but you get business. No, I mean that's a great point. Um, it was something that I was really conscious of, and the ESPN book is a really good example um, because. 
my favorite books to read are the true life behind the scenes business stories, whether it's uh, those guys have all the fun or Moneyball or uh, the war for late night, those kinds of books. And what I typically don't like that a lot of them tend to do is that they start chronologically. So the ESPN book, when I was hoping to learn more about, uh, you know, Chris Morrison, Chris Berman, uh, Craig Kilborn, these guys, you know, it started with the history of the company. Um, so given that that's sometimes a difficult challenge to interest you in the business side of the story before you even know the characters or potentially even care about them, I did try to approach it in a way uh, that made it the most digestible that it could be and, that, you know, to really focus on Tom Klinsky as a relatable character, as somebody who had a big part in all of our childhoods, um, and not really use a dense amount of history at first, and also to kind of use the dialogue to really loosen it up and make it um, seem like a lighter, breezier read to get into it. Um, so, you know, maybe I succeeded with that, or maybe I failed, but uh, it was something I was conscious of, and I appreciate the comparison to those guys have all the fun. I think that what they both have in common, ultimately, is that they are character-driven stories. His book was actually an oral history, so, you know, right. you're hearing it from their mouths. But, you know, as opposed to just focusing, focusing almost in an encyclopedic manner on Sega, Nintendo, or ESPN, I think, you know, to tell it through these various vantage points and these often larger-than-life characters really brings it to life in a way that anybody can relate to, gamers and non-gamers alike. You had uh, you mentioned to me in email, you know, that... You knew you wanted to be a writer, but you weren't sure how to do it, and you did a job in trading commodities. When you when when you dreamed about being a writer, did you know that Console Wars was the book you were going to write someday? Like, was this was this the dream book, or <laughs> did it come about in some other way? I mean, to be perfectly honest, it was probably the last thing I would have ever imagined that I would write. Um, I played video games a ton growing up. Um, you know, I grew up with having first an NES and then getting a Genesis. Um, but I had become much more of a casual gamer over the years. And then three and a half years ago for my birthday, my brother got me a Sega Genesis, which is pretty much the only thing that kept us friends throughout our childhood. And it brought back all these memories. And like I had mentioned earlier, my favorite books to read are the behind-the-scenes business ones. So I went to a Barnes & Noble and asked them for one of the books on Sega Nintendo, and no such book existed. And so essentially I wanted to read console works before I ended up writing it and, and the writing was really just a byproduct of my curiosity and, and finding out along the way that this world was as fascinating as I hoped that it would be. Um, and it's sort of, you know, what I began to realize was that when I went to that Barnes Noble, not only did they not have, you know, one of the books on Sega Nintendo, they, just, they didn't even have in stock a single book on, the, on video games, the history or the business side or even the design. All they had was walkthrough guides, the current games. And I thought that was pretty staggering for an industry that's, $60 billion bigger than film and music, which have their own historical section. Um, right. and, and just in general, video games have been so underrepresented in a literary format. And I hope that one of the things my book accomplishes um, is to inspire other people to tell more stories and also inspire those of the stories told about or not told about to step forward and, and you know share additional details. So... When you realize that there's a void, do you find in pitching the book that there's a lot of eager people to publish it, or did you find people <laughs> saying, well, look, there's a reason no one's wrote that book. Nobody cares. What, Which side of it, or somewhere in the middle, did you find it was? Uh, definitely the latter. Okay. Uh, you know, in a lot of businesses, publishing or 
really anything else. You know, people are t- tend to see it. To me, they seem to look for a reason to say no instead of a reason to say yes. And it's very easy to say, you know, the track record of video game books, the, the few that there have been, haven't sold well, and that's why they're not in a store. Um, and actually, I got, uh, you know, met with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg in January of 2012 before the book proposal even went out, before I finished it. And so I had them on board to uh, attach to produce and direct and write a feature film version based on the book, and also a documentary. And, and Scott Rudin was on board as well. And even with, like, the dream team to me, like, you know, I couldn't have asked for any more. We, we took the book out to 24 uh, publishers, and 20 of them passed because they said video game books don't sell. So I was pretty shocked, given the uh, main value of the people who were much more successful than me that were involved. Um, but luckily, HarperCollins saw the potential in this, and like I said, I hope that it opens up other people to uh, have, have an ability to sell it and get more of the stories out there. Was was the was your initial pitch? Was this before the success of documentaries like The King of Kong or Indie Game? I don't know if you've seen those, but those seem fairly yeah. popular. Okay, so this is all before this. No, no, no. Sorry, it was all after. Um, I've seen most of them, uh, and the funny thing is that the way that. Uh, Scott Rubin got involved was he had a meeting with Seth and Evan and they were talking about indie game because Scott was at HBO, had the rights to do a TV show based on that. Oh, okay. um, and, and he mentioned the idea to Seth and Evan who he knew were video game lovers and they all, they, they both wanted to work with each other. Um, and they said, actually, we're already involved with the video game project about Sega Nintendo that this young guy is writing. And then uh, I ended up meeting with Scott. And so <laughs> it sort of came from there. Um, did you guys see and like indie game? Yes. I did, yes. Yeah, I like, yeah, yeah, very much. I thought it was a really fun movie. King of the uh, King of Kong was one of my favorite documentaries ever, too. And we actually had Ed Cunningham on the podcast, uh, I think, last oh, April. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, last April. And he's got, I mean, I think he's done two documentaries, and they're like two of my favorite. I think it's that and maybe Undefeated. Is that the other one, Don? Do you remember what the other I one was? I don't remember, no. I know. Yeah, was, I think it was the Undefeated yeah, one. Yeah, I think it was Undefeated. Yeah, so. Uh, we love documentaries, and I'm really excited to see. And you've been actually working this week on a lot of the documentary stuff, right? When can we expect expect that? We're kind of bouncing over a little, all over a little bit here, but that's all right. That's all right. Um, so we shot the first round, or at least all of our initial pistol photography, and did 15 interviews last year while I was writing the book. And uh, right now we're in the middle of editing, hoping to have something done by uh, the early fall, and then do some animations and post-production. So um, hopefully by early 2015, the, the film will be ready. And uh, I hope you guys will hold it in the same esteem as the other two we talked about. What do you guys expect from the documentary, having read the book? You know, how do you expect it to be different, or what kind of media are you hoping? Or well, I would, ex- I would expect there would be a little less business in the documentary, just because I would figure there's going to be a little bit less time to tell the story. Um, right, right. So I, and I, I would think the pacing would be a little bit quicker than the book. Like that's the nice thing about being able to read a book. You, the, you can they, you can go a little bit slower. You can develop a little bit quicker. Documentary, I would expect, is going to be a little bit, a little bit quicker, a little bit more flashy, a little bit more, um, yep. you know, try to appeal to a little bit broader uh, spectrum of of ages, maybe than a you know a seven hundred page book can be intimidating. But um, right. I think it's going to be really nice to have both, and I think that it's going to work both ways. People who are going to read the book are going to want to see the, the film, and then people who are going to see the film are going to want to see the book. The one thing that I'm always worried about with documentaries is 
seeing them because even one like undefeated, <laughs> which won the Academy Award, it was months after the Academy Award that it, it was anywhere near my eyes because they didn't get on Netflix right away. You know, it never appeared in a theater in Buffalo. Um, you know, just distribution was not there. Have you guys, do you guys have a distribution plan ahead of time? Um, we don't have a distribution plan ahead of time. Do you have a best um, case scenario? At the request of Seth Evan and Scott, who want to, you know, make sure to keep their options open. But, that, you know, this is another situation where having such uh, successful people right. involved, Huge. much more successful than me, will right. definitely help us when it comes to that. Um, you know, I think that their name and interest in the subject matter and, and their involvement will carry a lot of weight. And, and I've been on the other end of it, you know, I did an independent film about competitive rock, paper, scissors several years ago that was 90 minutes of rock, paper, scissors, if you can believe it. Um, and I did some other projects, and I, you know, getting distribution was always incredibly difficult, and um, hopefully it won't be as much with uh, these guys on board. What has the uh, reception been like for you? I mean, I've read, I've, I've linked to a bunch of articles this month while we've been talking about the book with our listeners and, and talking to some of the listeners that have read it. Um, it's been pretty positive. Has it? Been, have you been? Have you been excited about the way people have responded to the book and the project in general? Yeah, I really have been. Um, I, my feeling is uh, very uh, crudely an overview. Is you know, I feel like twenty five percent of people really love it. About fifty percent of people really enjoy it, and about twenty five percent of people think the thing is the worst thing ever written. Um, but I think that's a pretty good breakdown. I'll take that. The one thing that people seem to um, not like in that bottom 25% is the dialogue aspect of the book, um, with it being a nonfiction book. And uh, in hindsight, the one thing I would have changed, not the writing itself, but I wish that in my author's note at the beginning I had mentioned that all the dialogue in the chapters had been reviewed by those stories written about and, you know, that they helped me along so that it wasn't just some... Uh, yeah, you know, I wasn't just lying on a beach inventing what I thought it would be a really cool scene. Right, that's so that's <laughs> that's so opposite. I really enjoyed the dialogue. I thought it was a really, I thought it was different for a nonfiction work, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So yeah, I mean personally, that's yeah my favorite part of it. So um, you know, I I think I was surprised that um, it seemed to be polarizing, or that there was a small segment that seemed to dislike it. But it definitely didn't make me wish I had done something else. Um, you know, I felt like the value of this story is feeling like you're in the room with these people and sometimes even more than just being a fly on the wall, but like being a fly in their brain and, and seeing it through their eyes and feeling it and to have done it in a different way where it wasn't as active and didn't have that dialogue would have been a disservice to them. Cause as much as it was about the, the facts and details and games, it was about like the feeling and the, the energy and momentum that they were creating and, and losing at times. So I, I felt like that was the only way to fairly... Uh, honor them. Do you find the feedback from the fans that the uh, the rivalry still exists out there? Are there still Sega fanboys out there? <laughs> yes, I, I really do. That was probably the most fun part of the project for me. Not only do I find that people respond to the material based on what their allegiances were, or at least that they, when they respond, they, they mentioned how strongly they still feel one way or the other. But speaking to the executives from Sega and Nintendo, they still have that enmity towards one another. You know, I thought, I think that going into the project, um, as a huge sports fan, I kind of liked it to like, all right, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, because I always put everything into sports analogy terms, and I was thinking like, 
two great competitors who pushed each other to the next level, but like, were kind of friends in the end, and like they they, they respected each other. Um, I think everybody from Nintendo still thinks that uh, Sega was a bunch of con artists, and uh, the guys from Sega think that Nintendo was a bunch of bullies, like to this day. So that was really fun for me to yeah, wow, still capture that, those strong feelings. You know, Don and I both had Nintendos and loved them, and then got Segas and loved them. And I know for me, and you mentioned this in the book. I think the reason I became a Sega Genesis guy and not a Super Nintendo guy was because of Tony La Russa Baseball and NHL 93 and NHL 94 and Madden and the way that the EA Sports games just seemed to translate so well to the Genesis. Um, yep. And you mentioned that in the book. What about the role that EA played in, in making uh, Genesis a player and making so few of us go from uh, Nintendo to Super Nintendo, and instead go from Nintendo to Genesis? Um, my path was very similar. Uh, I actually switched or went from an NES to a Genesis because my parents didn't like the backward compatibility issue. They didn't want to give more money to Nintendo after giving all this money and feeling like it was now obsolete. Um, but the games that I played almost all the time were NHL 94. I liked the John Montana football game, but I also uh, NBA Live 94 and 95. Um, and so that relationship with EA was definitely kind of what, what captivated me as a Genesis user. So it's kind of ama- it was kind of amazing to learn that the origin of that story came from a reverse engineering and sort of a backroom dealing. Um, and, and, you know, in the same way that I talked about Sega and Nintendo, people don't have kind words to say about each other. I, I found almost unanimously that everyone I spoke with from Sega um, said that they were responsible for EA's success, and for EA, they, they also they were responsible for Sega's success, which I thought was kind of funny. And, and because I'm a sports fan, I, I spoke with like 50 people from EA because um, I wanted to hear <laughs> the story. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, EA was really a computer game company, but they really captured lightning in a bottle with what they were doing on the Genesis and those sports games. And the EA Sports sub label is the best one that I've ever you know, that I know from any industry. It's so prevalent, and to this day, it still, still uh, you know, gets me in the game. I think that those games, you know, that, that was the one that I played th- uh, three and a half years ago, the NHL 94, that got me back into this. And they still hold up, which is pretty impressive, given that the sports sophistication in these games has changed. But, but the ones from back then are still really fun. Whenever the question comes up to me or like on a website or a forum or whatever, what game needs to be remade? For me, it always goes back to Mutant League football. Back, <laughs> I, I used to love the Mutant League football, the Mutant League hockey. That was all EA, and they kind of abandoned those for whatever reason, but I, I used to love those. And what did you love so much about it? I don't know. It just was so over-the-top and cartoony, and uh, the fact that you throw a ball to a guy that just landed on a bomb so he can't catch it now because he exploded <laughs> or he fell off a, fell off the – planet or whatever that it was just it was hilarious and have you played it recently i haven't i have i i haven't even yeah i gotta get an emulator out or something i have i'm just curious to see if you feel like it holds up because um you know i i absolutely love the mario games but even playing those nowadays it like brings wonder to me to play it but but it's just it feels so familiar and so similar to all the other games whereas playing those old sports games still you know, I could play them over and over and over. And even on my iPad, what I play is usually NBA Jam. That's the new RBI baseball game. So right. I can't get enough of those. You know, that's something I wanted to ask you about because Don and I were actually talking about this a couple of weeks ago. I think, Don, you had a one last thing or something about the video game convention, right? 
And yeah, we yeah. were talking about Nintendo maybe having a somewhat of a bomb of a system on their hand with the Nintendo U. And it's been so right. interesting to me that they just refuse to make apps. And, you know, obviously <laughs> Sega has done it with – they have Sonic at all and they seem very successful on iPad and iPhone. And EA has done it very successfully with their games. Do you, what, what is, you, can you see Nintendo giving up and finally putting out some apps, or are they just going to fight that to the death? I honestly can't see them giving up and doing it. The, the number one question I've asked over the past three and a half years whenever I tell people I'm working on this is, whatever happened to Sega, like, what went wrong? And the number two question is always, when is Mario and Zelda going to be available on the iTunes store? When can I download it? And just, you know, it seems like it should be a, <laughs> a simple thing. It seems it, like it a no-brainer. Make money off of it. Yeah. And also, you know, you mentioned their current system, the Wii U, is bombing or was doing definitely very bad up until the Mario Kart game. Right. And, you know, to me, even if they gave the game away for free, which I know is not in their best interest, uh, or they wouldn't ever consider doing it, like, just if you can get 10 million people playing Mario, I think some of those people are going to buy the Wii U, and that's going to generate a greater install base, which is their biggest problem right now, getting more people to buy their current console. Um, so I would love to see them do that, but they are, you know, for better or worse, their corporate DNA has been to control every aspect of the process and sometimes with consumers it's really frustrating but along with that you know by the same token i, I really never bought a nintendo product i was disappointed by uh, i haven't bought every nintendo product or you know all the consoles but every time i bought a game or a system it's always been pretty outstanding and that is partially because they are so um you know meticulous with the control well that's part of it i, I mentioned too when, we, when i did make that comment about uh e3 uh it seems like a bomb of a system, and I don't own any of the current generation systems right now, but if I were to go buy one, the announcement of the Hyrule Warriors and the next Zelda game and the uh, Mario Kart and Super Smash Brothers, if I were to go buy a system, I would be the one going into the store to buy the bomb of a system that's out right now because their first-party games are so good. Yeah, well, that's the thing that, you know, is why I kind of wanted the right console wars. Because I feel like a lot, like what you're describing, or at least how I feel about the current Wii U, is really just like the marketing and business stuff that you wouldn't normally think about. So the reason I didn't get a Super Nintendo when I was a kid, when I desperately wanted one, was because Nintendo didn't include backward compatibility because it would have cost an extra $75 and that they didn't want that, you know, to affect the price. So like the fact that a business decision is actually influencing our behavior, whether we realize it or not, um, you know, is why I liked writing the book from that perspective, because with the Wii U, like you just said, the software is incredible. I don't have a Wii U. I have four games. They're all awesome. Every game that Nintendo has made um, for the Wii U, I think, or at least 90% are very strong, but they've had a really big marketing problem, one, by not really focusing that much on the marketing, two, it comes with a tablet. I'm not really quite sure why. I don't really know. <laughs> to me, it just seems like a big controller, and because it has a screen on it that also shows what you're playing on TV, I find that I end up just putting on a sports game and then playing the thing like two, two, like, you know, two of it in front of me. So it's basically just turned into a big Game Boy, and if that's what it's going to be, why did I buy a console for that? Um, and, and also, the other thing with the tablet is I, I grew up playing with my brother, and if there was one tablet between the two of us, that really would not have gone very well. Right. So these are sort of like the marketing side challenges that I feel like people wouldn't really necessarily identify as the reason why they feel the way they do or haven't purchased the Wii U. But, um, you know, that, that shows that Nintendo's kind of still just focused on their product development and making great products. 
leaving the marketing to the other companies. And so far, it has not been very successful for them in pre- recent years. But by the same token, they still make fantastic games. And as long as they keep doing that, they're going to be around in some capacity, whether they go the same route as Sega and give up hardware and just do software, or whether they, their great first-party titles really do attract people into buying the system and sticking around for years until the next generation. You know, I, I'm asking this because I don't know, but I loved my DS until I got an iPhone, and then I just never picked it up again. Um, ha, have they? That was, I mean, that's one of the best portable systems I've ever seen, and I know kids love it. But have has has portable has uh, cell phone gaming, tablet gaming, has that hurt their handheld business at all? Or yeah, it absolutely. Has. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, they're still the leader amongst console makers that also do portable, you know, like I think that the PlayStation Vita was not successful at all. Right. Um, but I think the one thing you can say in common about um, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo is that all three of them really um, were not early adopters of mobile gaming. Um, you know, I think that the others, companies have stepped up, and Nintendo has too, but it's still through their closed architecture of, you know, you have to buy it on the 3DS. Um, but it's definitely hurt their sales um, and that's probably another reason they might have to seriously consider um, making their software available through other distribution channels that aren't their own. We're bouncing all over the place, like we said, but uh, I'm oh, thinking, I like that. That's yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. Um, I'm thinking about now how we're talking about a little bit more modern systems. Is there room for a console wars too? Uh, is there going to be? Is there room for? I mean, there's like four players if you count the PC as a gaming system, there's now Nintendo and uh, Sony and Microsoft and then just PC gaming, however you want to classify that. Or is it not as big a thing? Like back then it exploded and there was really only two. Yeah. Um, I mean, the part of the reason I wanted to focus on this era of the quote unquote console wars, which, you know, technically or colloquially happen every generation is because, I felt like this battle between Sega and Nintendo was sort of more like the Wild West era of the industry, where there was a lot more of an anything-goes mentality because the stakes were a little bit lower, and it was all so new. Um, and those backroom dealings and, and side deals and, um, you know, really influenced the industry. Not only were us kids sort of like on the front line choosing sides, but because there was so much more exclusivity back then, the, the developers had to choose sides, the retailers right. had to choose sides. So I think that's changed, and... You know, towards the end of the book, spoiler alert, they create the E3. Um, you know, they have to send stuff to a hearing to the and the industry really, really matures. So it, it's a little bit more like big business now than, uh, than sort of like the Maverick days. But it's, it's, uh, definitely fascinating, even just with the four players you mentioned or the three players plus the PC. The one that really caught my interest at E3 this year, um, was Oculus. I, right, I yeah. you know, we, People know of the Oculus Rift because of the big acquisition. Um, and, and, you know, as we had been promised, even as far back as the Sega Nintendo days, you know, virtual reality coming along with flying cars. I, I kind of thought, like, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And I thought maybe Oculus would have a presence at E3 or in the gaming space in, like, three years from now, five years from now. We'll see. They had a really huge booth there. They were there with the first-party companies like Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. And... Um, I guess I was just surprised by how quickly that's evolving. And they also, that same week, um, brought in Jason Rubin to run the games division, who had been at Naughty Dog, which created Crash Bandicoot and 
bunch of other great games. So uh, there could be a fifth is what I'm getting at, um, and, and that'll be a whole new terrain with, you know, Facebook being the big player through Oculus and also who knows what the other companies are going to, other uh, internet-based companies are going to get involved in there. Didn't so, John, yeah. John Carmack left id to do Oculus, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Exactly. So just those two guys alone who have like such, you know, two decades of experience in the video game industry, um, that's pretty impressive for something that's so new and that, like I said, you know, it, we've been promised virtual reality since as far back as Sega. So you were at E3 then? Yeah, I was at E3 this year. Um, it was nice. It was my second show. But last year when I went, it was our first day of filming for the documentary. So it was definitely not fun at all. Uh, this year I kind of just got to mosey around. Uh, Tom Clinty came and Al Nelson came for a little bit too so we could walk around and meet with some people. Um, it was a really fun show. The sportscasters are here with Blake uh, J. Harris, whose book Console Wars has been one of our book club books of the month for uh, January. It's Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, <laughs> and the battle. You that... said January. You're way behind. Oh, it's not January, is it? Not even a little no, bit. No, it's Ju- June was what I meant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined a generation. It's available everywhere you can buy books and ebooks as well. Um, and uh, I even listened to some of the audio book uh, while I had some downtime. Um, awesome. And, and check that out. And uh, I think that Don kind of asked you this, but we've seen it in in other areas where a guy writes a book and he's kind of the first guy to that spot. And then he kind of becomes the guy that everyone looks to to talk about that from going forward. Like whenever anything happens at ESPN now, everyone wants to know what James Andrew Miller thinks about it because he (laughs) spent such a significant part of his life studying that business and you've now spent a significant portion of your life studying the video game industry are you going to be comfortable if going forward everyone starts turning to blake every time something happens in video games and says hey let's find out what the guy who wrote the (laughs) book and produced the documentary about this has to say uh well that's the first time i've been asked that question but i would answer emphatically yes i'd love to um you know be uh uh, resource in giving my opinions on the current state of the gaming industry and, and also the history of the gaming industry. Um, to be perfectly honest, I kind of thought that after I finished the book and turned it in and I had spent three plus years doing this, that I was done with the video game industry and had nothing more to say and had, had had my fix. But, you know, within that week, a couple people contacted me who I'd been speaking with at Sega and said, like, oh, I just remembered a new story. And at first I thought, oh, crap, you know, I just turned in the book. And then I thought, well, you know, I still love the subject matter, and I want to know, and I'm still curious, and that's what drove me to write this to begin with. Um, so I've continued to collect stories, and, and you know, even by being at E3 this year, I, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about the current state of the industry, and um, I think it's extremely fascinating, more fascinating than anything else I've ever studied or been immersed in. So I would love to uh, continue to play whatever role I can, and whether it's, you know, speaking about the industry or if it does drive other people to write about subject matter and helping them along or, you know, providing advice or being a sounding board. If we have you back, and I hope, I hope you'll come back, when the documentary comes out and, you know, we, we talk a little bit about where it is and we, we follow up with you, what do you think we're going to be talking about besides documentary in terms of video games? Where are we going to be in a year or whenever, early 2015, uh, when it actually is January, uh, what are we gonna wanna? Be, what, what are we gonna be talking about uh, in the video game world? Do you think? What, what, what are you projecting out? What do you see? 
Um, well, I think that if I had to declare a winner from E3, I would say it was Nintendo. That, you know, part of that was just because they were in an awful spot going into it. Um, but I thought that they demonstrated the best software. The fact that you're, you know, considering purchasing a system now. Um, they had Mario Kart 8 come out in about two weeks before, which was itself kind of a system seller. Um, the Super Smash Bros. game looks great. Um, they have a good mix of old games sort of now for the Wii U as well as some new ones. Uh, but I think that we'll be especially talking about in January or sometime early in next year. Um, you know, as much as the console wars and the technology and the graphics have changed over the past 20 years, the one thing that hasn't changed is that the big battleground is, is still Christmas. You know, that's when you kind of declare winners and losers and see who's for real and who's not. Um, and, and up to this point, I think, you know, we could agree that Sony and Microsoft are, are the two big players, at least for hardcore gaming, um, and neither of them has really broken away from one another. I, I think that within the next six months, and especially at Christmas time, we'll see one of them um, pull ahead. The, you know, uh, I, I don't know that I have all the information to declare, you know, to make a guess, um, but one thing that really impressed me with Sony and it's sort of what Sony PlayStation did originally, um, what with the, you know, Sony PlayStation originally in, in the book, they were so great at reaching out to developers um, after Sega and Nintendo had sort of built frigid um, relationships, or at least they were so great at even giving out development kits so anyone could develop in them. And, and when I was at E3, I saw that Sony, more than any other company, had embraced independent um game makers, sort of, you know, kind of the kinds of game makers in indie game um, who are making games for a lower budget but but doing really innovative, fun things because, you know, they're more uh, visionaries and they can take the bigger risks. And, and Sony really embraced that at E3 and made it a part of their software. And I think that, you know, that's going to not only give them a bigger library, but it's going to also give them those new, um, you know, unexpected innovations and maybe... 80% of them won't be worth buying, but the 20% that will are, you know, potentially game changers. Well, you can find Blake on Twitter. He's at Blake J. Harris NYC. Uh, follow that so you can keep up on the documentary and, and uh, stuff for the book. Uh, again, the book is called Console Wars. Um, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. Uh, it's available everywhere you buy books. I actually saw it at Barnes & Noble yesterday when I was walking through. Uh, saw it on the shelf there, and it's available where you buy ebooks. Uh, ben, thank you so, or uh, Blake, I'm sorry, thank you so much for for being My part pleasure. of the book club and for giving us so much time tonight. And uh, we look forward to uh, keeping up with the project and seeing the documentary next year. Yeah, um, I'm very excited to come back and speak about the documentary. If you will have me again, thank you so much for talking to me and for reading Console Wars. Awesome. Anything else uh, plug wise you want to get out there to the listeners, or like that get everything in anywhere? Anything I left out? Um, well, for any of your listeners who are in the uh, New York or, or Tri-State area, close to the city, um, my grand follow-up to Console Wars is a musical about the splendors of Wikipedia called Wiki Musical that debuts at the New York Musical Theater Festival in uh, late July, or I guess later this month now. Um, there will be five performances. It's uh, starring a Tony-nominated actress, Brenda Braxton, as the evil spam king trying to take over the Internet. Um, and I think... It's a fun show, so if anyone's interested, uh, check out wikithemusical.com. All right, Blake. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. All right, I want to thank Blake J. Harris for being on the podcast today. We had fun with that. 
Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, different intro, but we did it to keep up with the video game theme. That's the Madden, John Madden Football 93 for you Genesis fans out there. We're going to do a little five on fantasy today. And after five on fantasy, we're going to have Michael Beller, who is the head fantasy writer for SI. Uh, SI just put out their magazine. And it'll be interesting to find out what role Michael thinks the magazine still has in the fantasy landscape. Yeah, we and, mean like a literal paper magazine. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to talk to him about that. Uh, but before we do that, Don and I wanted to uh, see where we stand uh, mock draft-wise at this point. So we're going to do a 1-11, to 11, I think we usually do. Yeah. Because we usually do the 10th Ten, pick. 10, which is basically two, two in a picks, row. right. Uh, so we're going to find out where we're at. And why don't you just do yours and then I'll do mine instead of going back and forth. It's probably a little easier to to just go through them that way, don't you think? Sure. Yeah. All right, I did not look at that ESPN mag or sorry, Sports Illustrated yeah, magazine. I just barely yet. looked at it. So it'll be interesting to see how different ours are at this point of the year. Uh, my number one, I don't see any big reason to change it. He may actually get quarterback help this year too. So Adrian Peterson, uh, I mean, since the year he had after he blew out his knee and came back and just had that monster year, there's just no reason to doubt this guy. Uh, number two, Jamal Charles. I think he might have been the number one fantasy running back last year. And I've always liked him, and sometimes it bites me because he gets hurt, but uh, he was phenomenal. Number three, LaShawn McCoy. I think there's some drop-off there between him and Charles, maybe a little bit less so if it's a PPR league because McCoy does get a lot of catches. Number four for me is where I vary from a lot of the experts. I like Eddie Lacy. I know he had a bit of uh, injury problems last year, but I like the way he runs. I like the offense he's in, and I just think there's a decent drop-off at running back here. Number five is Matt Forte. A real nice season last year. Again, in PPR, he's can be bumped up a slot or two maybe. Uh, number six, I'm going to go with Megatron. At this point, I feel the running backs drop way off for me, uh, and I'll take the best receiver available. And if it's PPR, it's just all that more valuable. Number seven for me is a little bit weird because it's a guy I would never take here. So maybe it's not – maybe I shouldn't have even put him on my list, but it's Peyton Manning. Um, he lost one receiver, but his receiving store's core is still awesome. Uh, and he just proved that he had, wasn't slowing down last year until the Super Bowl. But uh, I think he's going to be the number one quarterback in the league again this year if he can stay healthy. It's just I'm not one to take quarterbacks early at all, especially considering – on some early mock drafts, early ranking charts, you can get a guy like Brady at like the 10th quarterback. So if you wanted to wait on the very last quarterback, you can bank on maybe Brady having a bounce back here. I'm more likely to do that than I am to take Manning, but I think this is about where he's going to go. My number eight is Lynch, another guy I don't particularly like, but I do think there's some drop-off at running back. I just think uh, he gets a lot of touches, and he runs a real physical style. I think he's bound to slow down eventually. And there's a running back there. What's his name? Uh, Ruben? can't think of the running back's name in Seattle, but that they supposedly like behind him. So you got to think that's going to eat into his touch eventually. My number nine is Jimmy Graham. Um, this is about where I'm comfortable taking a non-running back because you're going to get the guy on the turnaround so quick, so you're still going to get a pretty quality running back. If you can get, If you can wait... And get Graham at 10, that's even better because then you you know you're, what running back you're going to get rather than having to wait those two picks. My number 10 is Arian Foster. This might be too high for him. Uh, 
I had a lot of trouble picking the running backs to go here. This might be the spot that is better suited for like a Giovanni Bernard, uh, a Doug Martin, uh, someone with a little less wear on the tires. I went with Foster kind of on a hunch that maybe he's going to have something to prove this year. He doesn't have Ben Tate there to take carries anymore. Uh, I think he's got something to prove. I, I know he's had a ton of carries, so I'd be leery of this pick. But uh, the other guys have question marks too. Bernard's never been in, I mean, Bernard was great, but he didn't get the ball enough. And uh, there was someone else I was thinking of too. I can't think of his name. Zach Stacy, maybe? Yeah, Zach Stacy. That might have been it. And uh, uh, the Seattle running back that you were thinking of, I believe, is Robert Turbin. Turbin, not yeah. Rubin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on the turnaround, if you're in a 10 teamer here, I like, I went with Foster and I think there's a little bit of a question there. So I want someone super safe. And I think that's Demarius Thomas. Uh, I, I think he's the, the best running or the best wide receiver behind Megatron. Uh, the only issue that he maybe has is there's just a lot of receivers there, but there always is, but there always is. And he still got his last year. Mm-hmm. And really the only other, when it comes to touchdowns, his biggest competitor for touchdowns is uh julius thomas so despite that Wes welker's there and whoever the third receiver is going to be this year thomas is the touchdown threat so yeah there's my one to 11 it'd be interesting to see in the next month how much it changes i know my league's going to have a real early draft this year because of your wedding and uh some other circumstances like labor day and that type of thing so i'll be having a draft that's relatively soon after this and then a draft that's probably way after that so it'll be interesting to see how much it all changes yeah mine isn't that different from you i think if i could pick any pick this year i probably want the number three pick because i think there's three players better than everyone else so i'll just take the last guy left and that'll give me closest to the top in the second i think it's adrian peterson one Lashawn mccoy two and jamal charles three and i don't think there's a huge gap there Either way. So I would be perfectly happy with drafting third and getting the third guy there. Um, and I really hope I can get one of those three guys. I think that right. all three of those guys really provide a huge head start. Um, fourth pick, I have Matt Forte. Um, he's been inconsistent throughout his career, so it does concern me a little bit just because of how great his season was last year. But I think his offense is just set up so great for him to still be very good. Uh, he's got great protection on the outside with the wide receivers that are there. You know he's going to catch passes. He's going to get a ton of carries. So I really like him at four. I like Eddie Lacy at five and Marshawn Lynch at six. Uh, I don't love Lynch, and I probably wouldn't pick him at six uh, personally. Yeah, it's uh, weird to do a it is a we, mock when you know there's guys that you're never going to take. Right. Over. I wouldn't pick Lynch personally, but would probably hurt my credibility if I didn't include him Somebody at all, will. Right? right? Somebody yeah. will, and I think that that's about where he should go. Six, uh, seven, I would say, would be Calvin Johnson time. Uh, eight, I have Peyton Manning. Nine, I have Doug Martin. Um, I like Martin uh, quite a bit. I think he's going to bounce back. Can't be any worse than last year, and he's going to be fresh, obviously. That injury came pretty early in the year. Right. The thing that scares me about Martin is just that he's only had a few really good games. That rookie year yeah, was he great, but he had a games. monster, monster yeah. game against Oakland. Um, so I'm concerned there. But I think the spot to be is in the top three or in this 10 spot where I would be more than glad to pick Jimmy Graham and Aaron Rodgers back-to-back and go that route. 
And not your own boy there. I actually, I mean, I know most experts are going to say Rodgers, and I think if Rodgers played sixteen, I'm fine games, with Brees. I mean, yeah, I think if Rodgers played sixteen games, he's going to be the best quarterback probably every year because of what he does with his legs. Right. But Brees is almost a lock for sixteen, and Rodgers is almost a lock for thirteen. You know? True. So Brees is going to throw for five thousand yards. Right. Yeah, I guess it's, his uh, thing is picks. So how heavily you're... you can't go wrong with Brees. But I, I would like. I think this year I want to be in the top three, or I want to be at the bottom. Yeah, I don't want to be picking where I have to decide on Megatron, Manning, or Lynch. Yeah, that that six to six, seven, and eight just doesn't feel great this year. So, yeah, we'll we'll see how much that changes. And do you have the guts to take a guy like Eddie Lacy with your fifth pick in the draft? Yeah, I had him at four. Right. Yeah, you know I, what I, I mean. I, th- and I think he deserves to be there. Sure. But that's a gutsy pick because you're counting on him being as good as he showed it his rookie year it's not an offense that you think of as running it in as much as maybe throwing it in it's going to be a lot of you need to satisfy a lot of fantasy mouths so to speak in that offense if you get a guy like Lacey that maybe you consider more of a risk than the guys the three guys above him do you tend to draft more conservatively after that or do you go for more home runs hoping that if one of your home runs misses one of them will hit like are you going to go for you got Eddie Lacy. Are you going to then take C.J. Spiller like in the third or fourth round, banking on one of them having another I think year? if I'm going to have the guts to pick Eddie Lacy, let's say you have the fifth pick, and it went Peterson, McCoy, Charles, and Forte. Okay. So you're really deciding on the safe, perceived safety of Marshawn Lynch or the upside of Eddie Lacy. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to go with the guts of the upside of Eddie Lacy, I'm going to play that way all the way through. Yeah. If I'm going to have balls in round one, I want to have them in round two and round three. I think that's right. I think that's what I would do too because if you get a guy that has a lot of upside that busts, then if your safe guy just ends up being a safe guy, then he can't overcome your guy busting. So I, I think that's how I tend to play, too. I, I mean, that's what I look for after the first two, three guys anyway. If I, high do, upside. if I do have the fifth pick and Peterson, McCoy, Charles, and Forte are gone, I'm taking Lacey. Yeah. Yeah, I that's think just I would, the way, That's just the way I play. So that's just what I'm going to do. Let's find out what Michael, Michael Beller would do and find out what the role of the fantasy magazine still is. Our next guest is from Chicago, Illinois, and is a graduate of Wisconsin. He got a master's degree from the famed Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. In 2010, he became a weekly contributor for Sports Illustrated until being promoted to lead fantasy columnist. Much of his current work can be found in the Sports Illustrated Fantasy Football Magazine 2014, which is on newsstands now. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Michael Beller. What's up, Michael? Hey, Steve, how's it going? Thanks for the uh, the great Badger welcome. I really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, so the Badgers, I, I was just reading a really interesting article about uh, the the Hobie Baker uh, winner from Wisconsin um, who played for the Canadians and cracked his skull and had to retire, uh, was talking about how his degree at Wisconsin has turned into like the most important thing he has. I, I thought it was a really interesting, like, 
article about a student athlete who achieved at the highest level in his sport, but mm-hmm. was still a student athlete and is now using the student part of it in his life. Um, considering everything else that's been going on in college athletics with the O'Bannon trial and all that. So I just thought it was interesting. Uh, Wisconsin thing. Yeah. I, I hadn't, I actually, uh, hadn't seen that. But yeah, I mean, it's something that clearly you, uh, you know, we're always hearing the, the extreme other side of, uh, of that debate. So very interesting. And not surprising that it's coming from Wisconsin. Let's be serious. <laughs> it, it, right. Exactly. And a great, <laughs> great hockey program there under, uh, Coach yeah. Jeeves for sure. So, um, we're really excited to have you on today. Uh, we're, you know, we're big Sports Illustrated guys at the Sportscasters, and um, we we enjoy fantasy football too. And uh, I think the first thing, all right. So when there was the lockout, the last lockout, pretty much nobody did a magazine that year because <clears throat> there was really no idea when it was going to end, if we were going to have a season. People had to do drafts kind of last minute once things were put together. There was no magazines. And it felt like the year after, I wondered – there was a couple magazines, but not the usual amount. And I wondered if maybe the lockout was the death nail to the fantasy magazine. I had wondered if maybe they just got too stale over the summer, if people weren't willing to pay $8 for them anymore, if there was just too much information on the internet. But it seems like since then, there's been a little bit of a comeback. And when I went to pick up the Sports Illustrated magazine when I knew you were going to be on, it was like full bore again. I mean, there was like 15 magazines there. What do you think it is about the fantasy football magazine that makes it necessary to still exist? Because you could certainly make the argument that it shouldn't, but yet here it is every summer, and I buy them every year, and I everyone at my draft has one every year. Right. I think it's still, I think for a lot of people, it's still, I think there's still enough people who are playing fantasy football, who remember this draft magazine coming out in June as, you know, the one piece of of information or, or content that you had to help you prepare uh, for your draft, even though your draft wasn't going to be until, you know, the middle or the end of August. So I think there's still that nostalgic, um, you know, kind of pull to it. I also think that it's just, you know, it, it, you, of course you can get a lot of this stuff online, you can get our stuff online, you can get any, you know, anyone, any of the other um, competitors' stuff online. But I think there's still just something fun to having a, mag, you know, having a fantasy football magazine. It's almost like the, 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 you know, when those first magazines start hitting newsstands in the middle of June or toward the end of June, that it like rings in the, the fantasy football season. Um, so I think it's kind of, it's both of those things. When you're putting uh, this magazine together, what what are you trying to do the most? Are you trying to make it relevant on newsstands for as long as possible? Are you trying to sell as many as you can the first week? Like, what is kind of the strategy behind it when you when you're putting it together to put it out? I think it's a little of both of those. I mean, you know, we can be honest. I mean, just the way that way that magazines have to be published and put together. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the writing in any magazine you're going to find right now is done in April, May. I mean, obviously things are going to change from the time that writers are sitting down um, and writing, you know, the columns for the times that these mock drafts are actually conducted to, you know, to right now, to a month from now, to when you're actually doing your draft. So, I mean, obviously it's not going to, you know, we can't, we, we do our best to make it, as relevant as it can possibly be, but things are going to change. So, you know, you, you try to do that, um, and at the same time, there are some things that 
quite frankly, are going to change. I think a really good thing that you get in these magazines is you get that very first planting of the flag for some important rankings. And as an example, someone who, um, who I'm quite high on this year, and, and most everyone's high on this year, but I seem to be just a tough player on, um, is Matt Forte. So I'm out there, Matt Forte, got him number two overall, number two running back. Um, you know, it's a little bit higher than you're going to see Forte in most places, and that is something that I don't expect to change. So those sorts of things are, um, I think, are, are, are really kind of where you can make your statement um, with a magazine like this. Um, also, just um, you know, in the same vein, um, everyone's got sleepers, everyone's got busts, and this is kind of your first shot to identify those guys. And those are things that typically you're not going to change too much of your opinion on. I'm um, sure there might be one guy who you know you, you weren't too big of a fan of uh, in May or in June, and then he's you know he's getting a lot of good press during training camp, and he looks really strong during training camp. And maybe your your opinion on him comes to change. But I think that's another good uh, another good spot. Another thing we try to do here is um, you know identify identify those guys as early as possible for our readers. I think it was ESPN a few years ago that kind of had someone out them that they just put their name on someone else's analysis. I'm almost sure it was – I'm almost positive it was ESPN. If it wasn't them, I apologize to them. But I know it was some magazine had said that several of their football analysts had contributed to the magazine. And one of them, I guess, probably accidentally admitted that he didn't – actually do it that it was like the fantasy team and he just said all right yeah you can say i did that um obviously that's nothing you guys do right like it's actually chris <laughs> burke and uh you know ben Ryder and all of these guys. right of course yeah, ben and, right. and gabriel and uh, peter bukowski and myself we all if our name's attached to it we're the ones who wrote it and th- that that was a silly part to ask a bigger question of you have so many great people at Sports Illustrated who write about football in so many different capacities. You have guys who do it strictly for the magazine. Uh, You have Don Banks, who mostly does columns online. You have the Monday Morning Quarterback website and the staff they have there. You have Chris Burke and Doug Farrar, who do audibles. Uh, Someone like yourself, who focuses on fantasy. How do you decide what resources will be best for this magazine? Is it like people who want to do it? Is it assigned by editor? I mean, how, how do you decide on... Okay, yeah, Ben Ryder might be on the cover writing about the Astros this week, but hey, he's also in our fantasy magazine this week. Yeah, I think I, I mean I, I think that, and thank you for the compliment. Um, I think we've got a pretty great uh, unmatched stable of, uh, of football writers, but I think it's mainly you know we have we have so obviously I'm going like I'm going to be involved in this fantasy is my main thing with Sports Illustrated, so I'm going to be you know my involvement goes without saying. Um, same goes for Doug Farrar and Chris Burke. Um, you know, they, there are, you know, our two main, um, dot com guys with audibles. So they're going to be involved. Um, beyond that, I mean, you know, we have so many guys that we can really draw from that it's people who just, you know, who are really into fantasy and who, you know, have a passion for it and just want to do it. And I mean, that's, that's, you know, obviously a luxury for us that we have so that we have so many different people, um, that we can go to. So, um, Bill Sykin was, uh, was the editor on this and, um, you know, he just approached a handful of people. And uh, just kind of made the assignments um, from there, and yeah, I think it was good. I think it's good. We, I think we've got a good diversity of voices. You know, we don't have you know you don't have one person writing too much of it. So you're getting strong viewpoints from 
a handful of us uh, who all have our own opinions and um, you know came to came to these uh, came to these conclusions on our own. And I think we're all uh, pretty intelligent football fans, know what we're talking about. And um, I think that's uh, that's one of the main reasons why uh, this is going to be one of the better magazines uh, out there on the market. Yeah, and it's been awarded. Uh, it says right on the cover, a two-time winner of Fantasy Football Magazine of the Year. And I think. To some degree, Sports Illustrated does have a slight advantage when making a magazine because you guys make magazine. I mean, that's what you've been doing for 50 years. So there is a slight advantage there. Sports Illustrated should be able to put together a great magazine. But I think that uh, beyond that, um, there's also been new direction at Sports Illustrated for the last year or so with John Wertheim and his partner as overall new direction of the company, trying to focus more on uh a digital aspect and using the iPad and all the other different things uh, in the Sports Illustrated uh, web. Is there any thought, to, uh, maybe not this year, but in the future, making uh, the Fantasy Football Magazine part of the iPad app as well, like the regular magazine that's distributed, and maybe uh, being able to expand on it in some way? I don't know. That uh, that decision is um, is a little bit above my pay grade. Um, and, uh, I mean, something that, that I think would be a, a great idea Um and I mean, as you know, we, we've just won for a new redesign last week. Right. Yep. Um, and our, um, our our new partnership with 120 Sports, the uh, all digital uh, sports network. So you know, you've definitely seen a push um, trying to do more digital, more mobile. Um, so it's something that certainly could be in the cards, but uh, I would not be the one who could say for sure. What's the plans for the season now? I mean, I think you guys have the best magazine. I buy it every year. I'm a huge Sports Illustrated guy. Usually every week almost I'm talking to someone from Sports Illustrated on the podcast. Yet I'll admit that Sports Illustrated isn't the first place I think of during the season to look online um, for fantasy advice. I'm sure that's going to change just by talking to you. Now that you've been kind enough to be on my show, I'm going to uh, try to reciprocate and, and be more cognizant of, of your articles. But to be honest, I'm not sure I knew you existed a month ago, and I don't mean that as any kind of a disrespectful or a punishment, or, or um, not punishment is not the right word. I don't mean it by any disrespect, by any means. Uh, I just don't know that fantasy has been on the front part of what Sports Illustrated has projected. Is there a plan to get you guys out there more beyond the magazine? I mean, I, I buy the magazine every year, and then I don't necessarily use Sports Illustrated as much as maybe I would think I might. Yeah understandable i mean you know without a without a commissioner um product right um, people are gonna you know people mm-hmm. play on yahoo they've got information on yahoo when i read yahoo or espn or cps or or wherever you end up uh, actually playing your game so one thing you're going to see from us uh this year is uh as part of our redesign um just launched a um a new daily fantasy game uh and the uh, fan nation app which is not quite yet available but should be soon to the public. Oh, um, it's a yes. Yeah, so it's going to be a daily fantasy game. You can play for free. If uh, playing for money is more your style, you can do that as well. Um, we're not quite sure exactly what it will look like for the football season, um, but we're debuting it with baseball. Um, and in that, you pick one pitcher, one infielder, and one outfielder. And your goal is not necessarily to pick the guys who have the straight up best days but the guys who most outperform their projections. So we're, uh, we're basically planning for it to look uh, close to what, uh, what the, uh, the baseball game looks like. But again, um, nothing is, um, not, no, none of the details to the football game are, uh, are hammered down yet. Um, these are things that have, uh, that have been reported um, since, uh, 
since the redesign launched and since uh, since they announced this um this daily game. So that's one um that's one aspect of our uh, of our coverage that'll be a little bit different this year. Yeah, it sounds. Other great. than that, um, we're gonna you know we're gonna be doing um what we've uh, what we've always been doing regularly. Um, hopefully this will bring more people to see um during the preseason our our team previews, um our mock drafts, our our rankings, our positional primers, uh, sleepers, busts. Um, we'll have plenty of debates uh, between me and uh, the other writers um, on staff, and then in the season, um, you know, we, we bring the uh, we bring um, that Sports Illustrated uh, expertise and edit- editorial policy to the uh, the staples that you, that any uh, fantasy player has uh, has come to expect. You know, your waiver wires, your your weekly rankings, your projections, your trade analysis. All the good stuff that uh, that you get in those other places, you can get uh, right on Sports Illustrated with that um, very high quality Sports Illustrated journalism background. You guys did do a, a fantasy preview in the, the the weekly magazine last year. Is there plans to do one again this year? Yeah, that'll uh, that'll be coming out um, probably the um, um, the last week of July. That issue, um, so somewhere right in there, end of July. Maybe early August, but right in that right in that range. Awesome. The sportscasters are here with Michael Beller from Sports Illustrated. Uh, he's at M Beller on Twitter. Uh, he does most of the fantasy work there. Uh, we're talking a little bit about the magazine. The Sports Illustrated presents Fantasy Football 2014 magazine. It's on newsstands now. Uh, before this just turns into a giant commercial, even though I was the one who. <laughs> Who uh, who solicited all that information? And I'm I'm better for having it. Uh, I I am curious about you as a writer. What are the things right now and in the next couple of weeks, um, as someone who plays fantasy football and someone who's going to have to write about it professionally? What are the things that you're watching? What are the things that you want to learn? What are the things that you want to know that are going to make you a better drafter come August and are going to be able to make you uh, write things that will help your readers become better drafters? What are you doing right now? Like, what what are the stories? What are the things you're watching? So right now, you know, we're we're in that little we're in that lull in between right. uh, mini camps, OTAs, and uh, and before training camp is starting. So you know, you're you're not really going to have a huge like wealth of news to really react from. So right now, basically, what I'm what I'm what I'm doing is you're looking at last year's stats, kind of just um, you know seeing seeing ways guys have progressed, um, kind of doing more studying of of new players and new situations. Um, you know the way that maybe a draft pick or a new acquisition is going to uh, to affect the team overall. The way a new coach might be um, affecting uh, an entire team overall, and kind of just trying to, uh, as best as I can, kind of refine um, our projections um, for what we think guys are going to do. Um, you know, come the season. Now, this is a process that you know lasts all summer. You know, changing. You know, coming up as news start rolling in, as these as training camps start. You know. July twenty, whatever. Um, you know, things are things are definitely going to change. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a completely fluid process. Um, so right now, it's more of a of a review a review of what has happened and um, and really getting getting amped up to write. Um, so we'll really start on SI.com. At least we'll um, we'll start rolling out our um, our preseason uh, content right after the fourth. Um, so you'll still really start seeing our. Uh, you know, right now, if you go there, it's still going to be very baseball heavy. Um, but uh, if you go um, the, the seventh, I believe that is, um, that's when you'll really start seeing uh, a lot of football stuff. Uh, starting off with uh, our team previews. You know, there was a time, and it wasn't even that long ago, where it felt like there was fewer people in your league 
who would win. It, it seemed like there was – this is going to sound silly, but it seemed like there was less fantasy parity. And I think in the information age, we've created more fantasy parity in, in our leagues. I, there's so much information out there. Fantasy mm-hmm. – uh, I think Michael or uh, Matthew Berry talked a little bit about this uh, when he was promoting his book about how fantasy kind of used to live in the shadows. And now uh, as the people who first played – fantasy became adults and brought it out of the shadows and and made business over it and the league was more willing to accept it and it became you know Michael Fabiano maybe was one of the guys who was able to bring it to CBS in a pregame show pretty early uh as more and more information is out there and available uh what does a a player have to do to separate themselves from the pack what what can you do still despite everyone in your league being as prepared as they want to be now just because there's so much information. Yeah. I mean, I think what you've got to do more than ever now is identify the players that you think are going to be good, the players that you think are overvalued, the players that you think are undervalued, and then stick to those. I mean, you know, you hear so much about waiting on a quarterback or, you know, throwing wide receiver, wide receiver the first two rounds. Quite frankly, any strategy can work. It's just about identifying the right players and getting those players on your team or identifying the wrong players and making sure that you don't end up with them. Um, that's why I think that now more than ever, it's important to put in the work and uh, put in the study. And I mean, isn't, isn't that fun? I mean, isn't that, you know, half the reason yeah, why great. we do this anyways? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think it, 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 it's more important than ever to do that because anyone can, anyone can, you know, go, uh, go online the day before their draft, print out a cheat sheet, go straight down the list and, you know, time to do okay, right? I mean, just with, with the amount of information that's out there. Um, so it, it's more important than ever to, to really, you know, go after those guys and then just to, to trust your team. I mean, if you put in, if you put in the study, you, you know, you, you, you've been watching football for your whole life and you know, you know what you're doing, trust yourself. Um, you know, trust those guys that, that, that you think are, are, are going to be the ones who are carrying you come November and December. I absolutely love that advice, but I can hear some of my listeners out there saying, listen, that's great advice, Michael, but I'm lazy and I'm busy, so why don't you just tell me some of those guys? Who are some of the guys that I should jump on and who are some of the guys I should stay away from this year? Okay, well, um, if we're talking um, true sleepers, guys who you know are maybe going to come somewhat from from uh, nowhere to be surprises um, this season. Uh, one guy who I really like uh, is Marcus Wheaton, a uh, wide receiver in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's going to be the new number two there uh, with Emmanuel Sanders uh, off in Denver. And um, he's, he's, uh, he's very similarly built uh, to the way Emmanuel Sanders with, uh, is. And that's, uh, that's a big reason why I think he can kind of step right in and fill that role uh, alongside Antonio Brown in the Pittsburgh passing game. Uh, didn't get a whole lot of burn last year, um, but his senior year, or as uh, last year at Oregon State, uh, two seasons ago, 91 catches, almost 1,300 yards, 11 touchdowns. Uh, Pittsburgh took him in the third round of, uh, of last year's draft. Uh, this is a guy who, who they were excited about last year um, and who they are even more excited about this year. It's uh, part of the reason why they were so willing to, uh, to let Sanders go. Um, so he's a guy who you're definitely going to want to keep in mind. Um, another guy I like a, a lot. Um, not necessarily uh, quite so true a sleeper, only because people love you know being that smart guy who uh, who targets a rookie and ends up getting a rookie who uh, who plays well. And I'm sure his name will be flying up draft boards uh, by the time you're actually drafting in August. Is uh, the 
Browns running back Terrence West. Um, he was taken uh, in the third round also uh, this year out of uh, Towson. Uh, it's a, that's an FCS school, and he set FCS records last year uh, with 41 touchdowns and uh, just a touch more than 2,500 rushing yards. Um, sure, it's not it's not D1 um, or uh, FBS, um, but this is a this is a guy who can legitimately uh, run the football. Uh, you know, we know the Browns have uh, brought in Ben Tate from Houston this year, uh, and Ben Tate always always showed plenty of uh, plenty of ability. Uh, whenever he got a chance, uh, when Arian Foster was down, or even just spelling Foster um, when he was healthy, uh, but we've not seen Ben Tate, you know, handle a starter's load for a full season, and uh, we had, so we have no reason to believe that he's going to automatically step in in Cleveland and be this, you know, twenty to twenty-five carry a game bell cow and be able to handle it. Uh, the Cleveland coaching staff is already talking about you know, how they want West uh, significantly involved in the offense. And for a team that you know has holes, they wouldn't invest a pick uh, in a running back unless that guy was going to compete for them this year. So uh, Terrence West is, is someone you're going to want to um, someone you're gonna, definitely going to want to have on your radar. And um, answer getting a little long here, but uh, uh, and I might be uh, bringing on the uh, the calls of homerism here, but I think that uh, Jake Cutler is going to be one of the uh, more undervalued quarterbacks um, in any league. Uh, part of that is because of yeah. the uh, the national perception of of Cutler, um, but we're all aware of the weapons right. around him. Um, Alshon Jeffrey, Brandon Marshall, best wide receiver duo in the in the NFL. Matt Forte is one of the most well rounded running backs in the NFL. Martellus Bennett, very strong tight end option. Um, all eleven starters on offense are coming back. What used to be a weakness in the Bears' offensive line is now a strength. Um, Mark Tressman turned Josh McCown from a guy who was uh, coaching high school football two years ago into a guy who got a multi-million deal, uh, multi-million dollar deal from the Buccaneers this offseason. Um, the offense around him is great. Keller has always had the talent, and now it sure seems like everything is falling into place for him. And yet he's still, you know, rankings are early now, but he's still, you know, seen as a as a guy who's just outside, you know, your typical top twelve. Um, in a, for their typical starters in a 12-team league, and I think that's way too low. I think he's got a, a top-five ceiling, and I would be shocked if he weren't a regular starter in 12-team leagues. All right, Michael Beller, uh, again, is from Sports Illustrated. He's at M-B-E-L-L-E-R on Twitter. Uh, the Sports Illustrated presents Fantasy Football 2014 magazine is on newsstands now. Uh, anything else uh, you want to direct the listeners to in terms of the work you're doing and the stuff that uh, Sports Illustrated is doing with Fantasy? Um, no, just, you know, keep, keep checking, uh, keep coming, uh, keep checking us out, si.com. Uh, you can find, uh, you can find all of us on Twitter. Um, any questions you got, we're, uh, we're always there. Um, I'm doing a, a, a weekly chat, so I do chats every, uh, Monday and Friday on Twitter. Um, any, any football, any baseball questions, if you're still, uh, right in the middle of the baseball season you got. And, um, yeah, just, uh, go, uh, buy our magazine. We get a lot of good information and, uh, keep checking out si.com. Is there, uh, is there a, a general uh, Twitter, uh, fantasy SI Twitter, besides, or should we just follow your M. Beller account? Or is there there like... is. There's, so in addition to me, there is. It's, uh, it's SI underscore fantasy. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Steve.
All right, I want to thank Michael Beller for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Blake J. Harris and Ben Ryder for being on the show. Felt good to do one after a couple weeks off for summer break. Uh, don't forget you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find all of our work, www.sports-casters.com. And let us know uh, who you think or what book you think should be given the, uh, I'm sure, prestigious honor of uh, Sportscasters <laughs> Book Club Book of the Year. I'm just surprised people aren't, when they like re-release the book in paperback, like it's not, we need like to make a little emblem that they can put on their book, like the, uh, what are, what are book awards? Pulitzer? Is that book? Yeah, they need like, a, like an emblem. Uh, I'm cheating this week, and I'm actually doing two last things, but they're short and sweet. The first one is a public service announcement regarding your wisdom teeth. When you're 19 years old and you start to get them in and there's any suggestion to take them out, just take them out. It's stupid to wait as long as I did. Uh, I want to say on the one hand that... I think we should all, uh, appendixes should work that way as well. Oh. I think you should just get that thing yanked out first possible chance you get. Yeah, but uh, I want to say two things. One, my doctor was phenomenal. As much as I said he put me through 45 minutes of hell cleaning my face or like my swelling up... Uh, he was super accessible by phone. Uh, he gave me his cell phone number. He texted back and forth with me. Just awesome, awesome guy. So what kind of drugs did they give you for that? I was on hydrocodones. 7.5? I believe that's right, yeah. And did they give you enough? Did you feel like you were under-medicated? Because um, it's such an interesting world out there now. This might not fascinate some people, but uh, it's really fascinating for me as being someone who has to be on this medication all the time because of my condition. It's really interesting. Hopefully you're not in this position, but it's much harder to get than it was 10 years ago. There's a lot of laws in place. And because of all that stuff, doctors can sometimes under-medicate patients who actually need the medication. I probably wasn't under-medicated if I didn't have any issues. Uh, But that said, he asked if I thought I needed more. And I know it's easy to get hooked on these things, so I told him no. Um, They they weren't especially fun or anything. Do you think you were scared away because of... What no, you've heard, I, you know what? Like, I do you think if you up. never even knew anything about pain meds, that when he asked you the second time, you would have said yes? Do you think you said no because of what you've heard in the media about them? No, probably not. I mean, I can see people saying that though, because I know as soon as you go into a place and ask for pain meds, they're going to look at you a little squirrely. Like, right? Probably not when you're having oral surgery. Right. But but yeah, no, I think I probably had what I needed for what I had done. So but, they were fair to you. But after I had the infection, I maybe could have used some more, but it was nothing that like some ibuprofen couldn't knock down. So right. I, I was were, okay. And they were fair to you. Yeah, they yeah. were. Yeah, he was. He would have given me more too, I think, knowing what I was going through. Um, but yeah, he was an awesome guy. Uh, Dr. Callen, Western New York Dental Group. Uh, highly recommended, despite my problems. But in talking to him afterward, I asked if infections it was... Infections happen. Yeah, he more. said infections yeah. happen. He did say that I was the worst infection of a surgery he's ever done. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I have that going for me. But they do say you're more susceptible to infections when you're older. So uh, not that I'm old. I'm 33. But uh, if you're 19, you bounce back a little easier, I guess. And my last thing is I know we've talked about this a lot before, and I know I said if I'm having a, I'm having a son. I think that's been announced on the podcast. But if he was 16 right now and asked to play football, I'd tell him no. That said – I don't know what the football landscape is going to look like. Maybe rules will change. Technology. Maybe things will be safer. Technology, yeah. all that. So I can't say for sure. But Ben Utech is in the news a little bit. He was a tight end, tight end played yeah. six years, not a long career, retired in 2009 at 29 years old. So he's just a little bit older than me. 
He has taken to writing a song. Uh, shoot, I looked it up. I don't remember. I think it was called You'll Always Be My Girls, something like that. He's writing songs for his yeah, daughters. Yeah, I've seen this. Because he can't, he's starting to forget things already at 35 years old or Jeez. whatever. Uh, their five-year-old has told a family doctor that sometimes she's afraid of her dad because of like the mood swings that concussions can cause. Just a scary, scary thing. I mean, I haven't listened to this song partially because, like, I didn't want to. I didn't. It's sad, and I didn't want to hate the song, you know, because it's like maybe it's bad, maybe it's great. I don't know, but I didn't want to dislike the song uh, after I heard it or anything like that. But totally sad. This guy's just slightly older than me. I have a daughter. I would never want to have to think about basically writing her like a memoir through song or something like that in case I lose my mind. So. Football's got to get their shit together before I'm putting my kids in their sport. All right. Uh, last thing for the podcast today. Uh, a couple ways I can go with this, and I could go the light way or the heavy way. I think I'll go the light way since Don kind of went the heavy, and uh, I can save the light or the heavy for another time. Uh, I'm having a little bit of a resurgence, I suppose, as a wrestling fan. Uh, and the reason is because of the WWE Network. And I got the WWE Network because they made it. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. There was just no reason not to spend nine ninety nine a month on it, at least initially, to see what it was like. And they did a genius thing in that nine ninety nine, in that they gave me the pay per views for right. free. So there was no reason why I was checking out the rest of the network to not check out what they were doing currently. And I got to see some stuff that I liked. And the first pay-per-view I watched back was WrestleMania. And they did the one thing that night that I couldn't think they could do. And that was they shocked me with The Undertaker losing, which was was a shocking moment. And they also left me wanting more with the way they put the champion over at the end with the big yes, yes, yes moment at the end with Daniel Bryan winning the championship. Uh, Since then, they've presented the interesting challenge of having their champion get injured right away. Uh, and seriously injured. Like real life injured. Real life yeah, yeah. injured. Uh, Daniel Bryan had a neck uh, injury. They had to strip him of the title. And uh, John Cena won the championship at the last pay-per-view just the other night. And they had a great show last night. Uh, a great Raw. It's too long. It shouldn't be three hours. For some reason it is, uh, which is way too long. That's so crazy. I still record it. I can't watch it for three straight hours. I record it and watch it an hour and 45 minutes without ads and... Fast-forwarding through the women's stuff, which just – I'm sorry. It's just I don't care. I just don't care about women's wrestling. I'm sorry. I don't think that's sexist because I think the women's wrestling in itself is sexist because it's all just half-naked girls it is, wrestling. And it just doesn't register for me. I mean, just porn on the internet. I don't yeah, know why that's just, still a thing. You know? It's just not for me. I'm sorry. Uh, but they are doing some great things. Um, and there's a really interesting point was made. John Cena – uh, guys like that represent the end of an era for wrestling. And that is that all of the new guys are going to be coming through the WWF's training system in Orlando. They spent a lot of money on it. And there's a lot of great wrestling podcasts. Comedians and wrestlers have like cornered the yeah. podcast market, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin has an un- is an unbelievable podcaster. He's a great interviewer. He's funny. It's a great listen, and it's something I can feel comfortable listening to because I know, generally speaking, I'm not going to end up repeating his opinions because we don't talk much about wrestling. Okay. Right? I've 
given up a lot of the podcasts I used to listen to. So I'm afraid I'm going to listen to them and then repeat their opinions. Yeah, I do that a lot with the local sports guys. Right. Yeah. So I've stayed away from – I don't listen to Damashek's show as much as I used to. I don't listen to Simmons as much. And Simmons has helped me because he only talks about basketball, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't listen to Merrick versus Wyshynski as much because I'm worried then I'm going to bring their opinions to our show. But wrestlers and comedians, we usually don't talk about what they do. Right. Uh, and uh, if you get a chance – uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin on his podcast this week has Vince Russo, who is one of the head writers during the Attitude Era, and he gives an unbelievable perspective on the Montreal screw job, which was Bret Hart leaving the WWE. Incredible stuff on that, and a really, really sad and touching moment where he talks about the night that Owen Hart died hmm. and how things played out backstage and the decisions that were made. And why they were made, and it's really incredibly powerful stuff. This is Stone Cold's podcast? Stone Cold's podcast, yeah. So if you get a chance. Is it really, is it like WWE presents Stone Cold? No, it's uh, Podcast One presents. Okay. So it has nothing to do with the company at all. Does he beat up the company a little bit then about Very that? fair. He's very fair. Is he? Yeah. Good. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I definitely recommend that. And oh, the point I was making was with NXT. We're going to get to a point where all the wrestlers have been trained exactly the same way. They're going to all learn to wrestle at the same spot, learn how to take bumps the same way, learn how to give interviews the same way. And I wonder what effect that's going to have on wrestling. In five years, when every single person in the company was trained by the same people the same way, is it going to make for really boring wrestling? It's a really interesting challenge going forward that I'm really curious to see how it plays out. The number one thing I have going for me coming back in after 10 years is I'm not sick of John Cena and Randy Orton. Right. I'm like John Cena won. I thought it was cool. I liked it. There's a lot of people who have seen John Cena win over and over for 10 years and they're done with it. Yeah. I'm not. I'm having a little bit of fun watching it again. I wish I had a five-year-old right now, (laughs) you know, because it'd be a great time to take him to the matches and to be able to cheer. Uh, Chris Jericho came out last night to start a new run, and you know people went crazy. It was a great little swerve because uh, it seemed like they were bringing out the Miz, who everyone hates because he's a jobber. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it would just be a fun time. But um, yeah, I'm really curious. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Get the WWE Network if you've ever been a fan. It's worth the 9.99 a month. The product that they have out right now, it's decent. They got some good up-and-coming guys, established guys that are there doing good work still. Podcast scene for that is great. The Cheap Heat podcast that is from Grantland that David Schumacher, who's been on our show a couple times, hosts, is fantastic. Uh, Stone Cold's is great. JR has a good one. So there's lots of great stuff happening. If you're ever thinking about maybe getting back into wrestling or into wrestling for the first time, now might be the time to do it. And one last thing, one argument that every wrestling fan wants to have, which I don't understand, is the Mount Rushmore of wrestling. Because I just don't think there's any spots up for debate. I think one is Hogan. Then you have to put Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock in two. And I think John Cena has secured the fourth spot. The only one I'd even be willing to listen to a discussion about is Cena. I think the other ones are, are sewn up. Ric Flair probably deserves a spot. I just don't know who you take down. Yeah, You know, I think that you can make an argument for Bruno San Martino. You can make an argument for Ric Flair. You can make an argument for Ernie Ladd. You can make an argument for, like, someone crazy like Bobby Heenan, who 
is a from a different part of the business, but was the absolute best at it. But I just don't see who you would take down. So if you're interested, uh, tweet us at sports underscore casters or the sportscasters at gmail.com and let me know why I'm right or wrong about the Mount Rushmore of wrestling. Go, go!